The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! We're back for episode 60 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Lee Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I am without error and have (laughs) not... Sorry, I immediately thought I should make some kind of joke about that and then uh, didn't have anything in particular to say, so, you know. I I was actually kind of expecting you to go, there's no more use for this conversation, Lee. (laughs) I I should have, I should have. Along those lines. Yeah, I, I really should have. I didn't think about it until literally as you said something, and I thought, "Oh, I should make some kind of joke." And then I had no, I had nothing I had nothing prepared. <laughs> this is this is the level of uh, interest that I have in this podcast today. I'm literally thinking of jokes in the moment instead of prepping uh, four hours in advance. So yeah, his stand up routine was not written beforehand this time, folks. No, so. not at all. Not at all. Usually, yeah. usually. We prep this and uh, really get like have a clear back and forth. It's edited as much as like a Howard Hawks routine, mm-hmm. like like a Howard Hawks film. That's the level of preparation that you and I normally do on this podcast. But uh, today I wasn't feeling it, so yeah, yeah. So we're just winging it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be tackling quite a big film and its sequel. That's not quite so big, but uh, uh, I, I dare say a, a monolith of a production. See what I did there? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> full of full of uh, piercing shrieks of uh, radio transmissions towards space. That's yeah. that's what this is. This podcast. 
See, you, you threw in a bad joke, and I threw in a worse one to try to cover for you. That's, that's what yeah, we yeah. do on, on this podcast. I get it, yeah. Really, this podcast aims to be inscrutable and uh, in the dimensions, one by four by nine. <laughs> very And very, very smooth. And very smooth. And, and full of stars. Yeah. And full of stars. Yeah. I like um, to think that, really, we're just sitting here, and there are just a bunch of, like, proto-humans that are just, like, you know, touching the outside of this podcast un- incomprehendingly. That, that's sort of how I feel about, <laughs> you know, us putting this out most of the time. <laughs> it sometimes feels that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, not, not of course. Our uh, our uh, friends on Facebook, you are indeed not proto humans. Most of you are at least evolved somewhere beyond the uh, Australopithecines uh, <laughs> presented in the film. We're going to be looking at, uh, and of course, you hadn't guessed by also reading the title of the podcast in the first place. We're going to be doing two thousand one, a space odyssey from nineteen sixty eight, and we're going to also be. Taking a look at its sequel from 1984, we just have a little teeny bit of house cleaning to do. No comments or anything like this uh, this week. So people, people else. just didn't give a shit about our inherent vice discussion. Apparently, no. They, they. Uh, I guess when people were saying they hated that film, they were like, "I hate that film so much, I don't want to even hear a podcast about it." So. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody even commented about the Belladonna thing. I was expecting a little bit of a like, you know, at least some, some like. If people had loved it or hated it, I would have been fine. But the fact that people just completely, you know, didn't respond at all, just kind of, it's a, it's a level of ambivalence that I was not expecting from our audience. You know, you know what it was? Uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure probably word got to the Rialto report that you were uh, throwing down, and then they, <laughs> they went around and silenced people. Yeah, probably. Like the 9mm, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so... Uh, not not a lot to talk about. Uh, one brief thing I do want to mention. Um, this will be of interest to you too, Dan. Uh, our friends over at the uh, Badass Boobs and Body Counts podcast, sometime in the next four weeks, they're going to be covering the van. I just hope that they uh, really give the ginger rapist his due. <laughs> so I actually, I actually quite look forward to that, uh, seeing what to... I, I do as well. I'm, I'm definitely going to, I mean, I listen to that podcast, you know, here and there, you know, when I'm, oh yeah, that mm-hmm. looks interesting, but I'm definitely interested in uh, hearing what they have to say about the van. I just hope they do Van Nuys Boulevard at some point, if they haven't already. You really should. I, I forgot to actually mention that to Mike, that, uh, well, if you're going to do the fucking van, you should do Van Nuys Boulevard and uh, even do fucking um, Malibu Beach and, uh, oh, the, uh, beach, the Beach, beach girls. girls. Yeah, Mal- Malibu Bikini Shop and the Beach Girls, yeah. Yeah, she, they should, you should just check them all, Mike. You should just do a sex comedy series. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the path to fame and fortune, mm-hmm. is is talking about titty movies of the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're talking about art films from the, from 1968 today. Because yeah, we said we're too popular. We're too, we have too much, too many people listening to us and paying attention and giving us, you know, being interested being interested in what we have to say. So let's talk about stuff nobody cares about you know, us talking about. That that's that was certainly my thought. <laughs> I think I think we I think we gained our audience from uh, all the all the lowbrow stuff we look at and now they're like, why are they looking at M? Why are they watching two thousand one? Why the why the fuck are they watching these art films and these where, like classic Where where are the tits? Yeah. Where where's the blood? You know where where where's the where are the slasher movies? You know where where where's the Diallo horror? You know, yeah. Some of that stuff will be coming back very very soon. I'm, I mean, even even next week we're going to be stepping right back into weird Italian shit again. So uh, 
some people will be right at home. We've got to get out of. We've got to get back into the gutter. I don't know yeah. if people don't actually pay attention to us. So, but speaking of future stuff, uh, we are planning to finally go ahead with our uh, Italian Western series this summer. I do have in my mind a, a, just a short layout of a couple films that I want to cover. I mean, we're definitely going to be doing The Great Silence. We're definitely going to be doing Once Upon a Time in the West. I'm not so sure yet if we're going to look at the Dollars trilogy this time out. Maybe leave it for later. I'm not a uh, fucking spaghetti western historian by any stretch of the imagination, so it's not going to be like some big genre overview or anything like that. We're just going to be looking at some specific films and, you know, we'll, we'll bring some context to them where they kind of fit in spaghetti western uh, history and all that, but I mean, it'll, it'll be more about talking about the films themselves than the genre, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to approach it the way we did the film noir, where we started watching stuff and then just kind of like, it starts to create a form as we watch it sort of thing, yeah. you know, where talking about the films, but kind of comparing from week to week, kind of what we're talking about, you know, so mm-hmm. uh, it's almost like, you know, I'll bring some stuff that I think is interesting and you bring stuff that you think is interesting. And I know you've seen more of them than I have, but I'm very interested in the form. And so I, I think it'll be a really interesting kind of back and forth. Um, yeah. I've been looking for, I mean, I said this a couple of weeks ago, you and I have been talking about doing spaghetti Westerns literally since before we started doing this podcast. Yeah. This was an idea we had was to sit and do a bunch of spaghetti Westerns in a row. So uh, this is almost like once we finish spaghetti Westerns, I don't know that I want to keep doing the podcast. Like I feel like it's just like, <laughs> We're done at that point, right? Like, we don't have anything else to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, Great Silence, Once Upon a Time in the West, definitely. uh, Django is is a must. And at this point, unless uh, someone talks me out of it, Django's going to be like a three-plus-hour episode, I think, because (laughs) because we're going to do the original Django, we're going to do Quentin Tarantino's semi-remake, then we're going to also have to mention, basically, the litany of films that either uh, profess to be sequels to Django or basically just stole the name and retitled their own films with that name because it was popular to do at the time to sell tickets, right? Uh, and there actually is an official Django sequel that came out in the 80s, like long after Spaghetti Westerns were basically dead and buried. <laughs> so I think that's going to be great. Yeah, I think we have to look at them all. Like, um, is that the cocaine fueled Django? Is that the is that the one where they're uh, you know a bunch of guys with like gold teeth, you know, like like uh, doing cocaine and you know no that, that each other with uh, pearl handled uh, revolvers and shit. That was not the cocaine Django. That was the this is the Italian film industry in the eighties. We have no money at all to make a film. <laughs> Django is what that was. <laughs> they spent uh, all their money on cocaine and then they had no money for the actual film. Yeah. That's, but that'll be fun. But uh, I, I did put out a, a question there on, on, on the Facebook page. Hold on, I hold on, Lee. What, do we have a Facebook page? We do have a Facebook page. Uh, that a few people use it. But uh, I, I did put a question out there. They must be destroyed on site, on Facebook. If you're not there, you should join up. I, I need suggestions for just sort of fill out the Spaghetti Western series because I think it's going to be a fairly long one. So we're going to try to cover a lot of stuff. I got a, I got one really good suggestion that I didn't even think of that actually has to be added to the Django episode. Uh, it's called Django Kill, and that, w- that was uh, suggested by uh, Hunter Deucing from Midnight Movie Cowboys, uh, so thanks to him for that. 
I actually, I actually was like, oh yeah, that fucking movie. I totally forgot about that one. So I, I immediately put it on order on eBay <laughs> to get a copy. It's, so. it's it's always nice when people from superior podcasts like will send you messages and be like, oh no no come on, you guys like like pat our heads like the small children in comparison. <laughs> we are. You should you should make sure to do this one. Make sure to cover it. Like, talk about it. Like, people will like... Yeah, uh, well, I still can't believe that Mike Murphy even talks to me. I mean... <laughs> I mean, they've been around for years, so... Uh, yeah, they're up to almost 200 episodes, and uh, yeah. we're at 60, so... We'll get there. We're coming for you. <laughs> if you if you, if you you don't get sick of my bullshit before then. Uh, if I'm not, I hadn't gotten sick of your bullshit before, I don't think I will now, but... Uh... <laughs> Uh, Blue Velvet was really the the dividing line. It was like, okay, this is the point at which we had a pretty enlightening conversation on that one. So uh, not yeah, not that's, to that's the that's what we call it. Not <laughs> to blow our own horns or whatever, but yeah. you know. And we did have Jack Graham on that, who uh, mm-hmm. both of us. So you know, there is that yeah. aspect as well. And then just single handedly gave us like all our most listened to episode ever. And <laughs> yeah, that's what Jack does. He just comes in, he pretends he's uh, like, oh, no, 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 he's very self-effacing, and then um, just delivers thousands of views, you know, or listens. Yeah. Oh, I'm just this humble, humble guy who, uh, you know, by the way, I'm brilliant and... Uh... <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> You're going to shit-can me and just hire Jack Graham for this podcast. I know that's what's He does happening. too many podcasts as it is. I don't think he has yeah. the time to co-host anyone else's. But yeah, I, I guess we can uh, jump right into the films here. We're going to start with 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968. Welcome to voice print identification. When you see the red light go on, would you please state in the following order? Your destination your nationality, and your full name. Moon, American, Floyd, Haywood R. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Thank you. Quite frankly, we have had some very reliable intelligence reports that quite a serious epidemic has broken out into claims. I know there have been some conflicting views held by some of you regarding the need for complete security. Something apparently of an unknown However, I accept the need for absolute secrecy in this. This is in fact what has happened. I'm really not at liberty to discuss this. We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides, but unfortunately we didn't find anything else. It hasn't been covered up by natural erosion or other forces. It seems to have been deliberately buried. Four-million-year-old black monolith has remained completely inert, except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Three weeks ago, the American spacecraft Discovery One left on its half-billion-mile voyage to Jupiter. The sixth member of the Discovery crew was the HAL-9000 computer. Everything is going extremely well. One gets the sense that he is capable of emotional responses. Well, hell, I'm dead. I'm not No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. Look, Dave, I can't put my finger on it, but I sense something strange about it. Just a moment. Just a moment. Do you know what happened? I'm sorry, Dave. I don't have enough information. You made radio contact with him yet. The radio is still there. Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore.
directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Stanley Kubrick uh, and Arthur C. Clarke for the screenplay, and based on a story by Arthur C. Clarke, a short story called The Sentinel. And then later on, of course, it was uh, retrofitted into a novel by Arthur C. Clarke as well, uh, after after the fact. But um, starring in... I apologize if I get this name wrong because it could be pronounced one of two different ways, and I'm going to pronounce it the way that might be offensive. Kier Dulia as Dr. Dave Bowman. Is it Dulia or Dulia? I think it's Dulia, but I could be mistaken. I actually don't know. All right. Well, sorry. He's still alive, so if he wants to come find me. Um, (laughs) I would love to get to chat with Kier Dulia. I, I I would love that. That would be great. I mean, he's still working. Uh, yeah. Do- yeah. Uh, as Dr. Dave Bowman, Gary Lockwood as Dr. Frank Poole, William Sylvester as Dr. Haywood Floyd. Uh, what a name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Daniel Richter as Moonwatcher. Leonard Rossiter as Dr. Andre Simsalov. Uh, Margaret Tizak as Elena. Robert Beatty as Dr. Ralph Halverson. Sheen Sullivan as Dr. Bill Michaels, and Douglas Rain as the voice of HAL 9000. And I'll turn it over to you, Daniel, for your synopsis. The dawn of man. Four million years before present in the heart of Africa. A band of proto-humans starves in a land of plenty, foraging for scraps and berries, unable to hunt without the ability to make tools. Beset also by a competing tribe, they are not even able to use a watering hole without incident. Sometimes they're even attacked by predatory feline carnivores. Until one day a black monolith appears in the valley, its piercing signals changing the minds of these almost people. Afterwards, one of their number picks up a bone from the scavenged taper, using it to extend his reach, his power. From this simple tool use, the tribe first learns to fell prey, then to defend themselves against the other tribe. Triumphant, one of those approaching sapiens throws his tool into the sky. And four million years later... In the year 1999 or so, a space station orbits the Earth. Dr. Haywood Floyd, William Sylvester, is on a commercial flight to the moon, but alone among the quasi-luxury of the pseudo-futuristic jet set. After a sequence in which Floyd evades questioning from friends and colleagues, both direct and indirect, it is revealed that there has been a discovery of what is called the Tycho Magnetic Anomaly, TMA-1, a black monolith displaying a characteristic magnetic signal that has been on the moon for 4,000 millennia and has been, in the words of another crew member, deliberately buried. When a crew of space-suited investigators approach the monolithic lunar sunrise, the alien object lets out a terrifying and piercing radio signal. And 18 months later, presumably in the year 2001, Frank Poole, Gary Lockwood, and Dave Bowen, Kierdulia, are aboard the spaceship Discovery 1, headed towards Jupiter space, where the signal had been sent. Life is spartan and routine, but comfortable, as they are safely in the hands of the HAL 9000 mainframe computer Douglas Rain, whose series has never committed a single error and who has what is probably the most dynamic personality of anyone in the cast. <laughs> One day during the mission, after asking Bowman if he has any doubts about the mission, HAL reveals that the AE-35 unit, part of the communication system that connects the spaceship to Earth, is in need of repair and will fail within 72 hours. Poole does an EVA to replace the unit and discovers that it is in perfect working order. He and Bowman arrange to speak privately, or so they think, in one of the EVA pods, but unfortunately the increasingly unhinged computer can read lips as they express doubts about house stability and usefulness for the mission. Upon a second EVA to replace the AE-35, Poole is mercilessly killed by his own EVA pod, and when a frantic Bowman leaves the ship to collect the body, the way back in is closed in to him. During this process, Hal also shuts down the life support systems of the three other crew members who had been in suspended animation during the journey. 
Bowman risks exposure to space to re-enter the ship, and in a heartbreaking sequence, shuts down the higher functions of the sapient computers it sings Daisy Daisy. During the process, a report from a muckety-muck plays for Bowman, revealing that the purpose of the mission was to investigate an alien artifact, a monolith, orbiting between Jupiter and its first moon, Io. In the final half hour, Bowen approaches the monolith in an EVA pod and is taken on a journey beyond the infinite, a psychedelic trip through landscapes, colors, moons, and stars that ends with him in a small room, observing his own aging process over what appears to be decades. Eventually, the astronaut dies of old age, confronted by yet another monolith, and when he reaches out in helpless, helpless sucker, he finds himself transformed into a star child, hovering over the Earth itself, not knowing what he might do in the future. But he would think of something. Nice. And that sums up a movie that uh, actually can't be summed up, really, in, in <laughs> right. a lot of ways. So uh, that, that, very, very well done. Um, certain, certain bits of that are taken from the novel. Those who have read the novel know which bits are. So you know, we'll just kind of leave it at that for now. So did you read the book first before you uh, saw the movie, or was it vice versa? I read the book first. All right. I'll just say I read the book when I was 11 years old, and mm-hmm. it was one of those, really the first adult book I'd ever read. Um, I read a lot, you know, and, um, you know, the, the old thing, you know, um, when I was a child, I, I acted as a child and thought I was a child. And then when I was an adult, I set aside childish things. The book, 2001, A Space Odyssey by Arthur C. Clarke, was kind of like that dividing moment for me. And then I saw the movie not that much later and always connected the movie to the book. And, in fact, only on this viewing had I not, like, read the book recently when I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. This is a property that has like kind of enormous personal importance to me. So that was why when you know we were kind of when we had the suggestion to do it, I kind of thought, oh yeah, no, this is something I should at least talk about. But I'm in, in a lot of ways like it's so integrated into who I am as a as a person and a human being that um, I almost have a hard time approaching it just as a piece of art, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'm really interested in kind of where this conversation is going because I almost, beyond writing this, uh, you know, plot summary and rereading the novel and rewatching the movie, I didn't like prep talking points. I'm just kind of like, we'll just kind of go as it goes because I know this thing intimately. You know, this this is something that I have literally seen this movie probably 20 times and I've read the book like a hundred times over the course of my life in the last 25 years. So I, I promise not to talk too much about that, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is something I, I know last week I talked about like Pinchon as a novelist a lot. And I, this is not that it, there are definite flaws in mm-hmm. the, in the book and uh, the film, arguably um, there, there are definitely flaws. And so I will not like kind of speak as, quite as highly of the novel 2001, but it's something that really meant a lot to me growing up, and uh, it was kind of a big part of who I am as a human being today, just because I read that when I was 11 years old. So Right on. I've never read the book. It's always been something I've intended to eventually get into. Maybe not the later book so much, because I have sort of read synopsises, and uh, from what I understand, the books go way off kilter from the there's original. A, there's definitely a law of diminishing returns and really, I mean, I think that uh, 2001 is definitely worth reading and mm-hmm. 2010 is, if you if you like 2001 and depending on how you feel about the film 2010, you know, I think it you know, will kind of depend on whether you want to read that novel. After that, particularly 3001 is a disaster. In fact, 3001 is just, it's just overtly bad. I mean, it's it's just it's not a very good book. And um, twenty sixty one, which is the uh, the third one, uh, there's some interesting stuff in it. But uh, for the most part, at that point, Clark is just coasting. 
Um, he was definitely kind of getting on in years, you know, even though it's only written a few years after uh, 2010, it was not, I, I had no um, desire to reread that for this podcast. It was definitely because I did reread 2001. I thought about doing 2010, but I do, I mean, those two I've read over and over and over again. I, I kind of have those kind of pretty, pretty much at, at hand. There's some interesting stuff in 2061, but there's not nearly as much interesting as, as like maybe <laughs> Clark thinks there was <laughs> in that novel. Um, you know, so, so there's definitely a point of diminishing returns, but I would highly recommend anybody that has even a passing interest in uh, the film and Kubrick's film uh, should probably read the novel. It's uh, you can buy it for five or $6, for, you know, in a used paperback or whatever. Um, probably less if you find it used. I mean, it's, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have a couple of different copies of it, but uh, uh, the novel, it's a fairly quick read and it's, uh, it's very much, this is what, you know, golden age science fiction looked like in 1968, you know, yeah. It's it's uh, very. I, I'll I'll talk a bit about the novel as we kind of as we kind of get into it, but it, it's it's very um it's very it's very dry and technical, but with kind of the the heart of an artist. I mean, there is this sort of sense of uh, Clark, of the kind of big three science fiction writers who are you know Asimov, Heinlein, and Clark. Clark kind of had the soul of a poet the most. He was definitely mm-hmm. the one who was really interested in these kind of big picture ideas of, you know, kind of human evolution, you know, kind of what, you know, the future might hold, like far future might hold. Not that Heinlein and Asimov weren't, but, but Clark definitely had a sense of kind of the, the humanistic impulse and this kind of, this kind of um, big picture curiosity. And that really infects a lot of his novels. I mean, he was definitely the artist, you know, of, of those kind of three, white guys i'd say clark was also a gay man which i didn't mm-hmm. know until uh several years after he died actually um i'd say clark was somebody when he died i actually mourned i actually was like um that was somebody who i really wish i'd gotten to meet during his life um he died in i think 2007 or so mm-hmm. um not long after george carlin died which is another yeah. that i kind of took personally um i think carlin and um Vonnegut and uh, Clark all died within like you know a year of each other. Yeah, it wasn't too cool. it wasn't too far apart, was it? No, no. Um, so and those were all deaths that really that really kind of hit me hard. Clark definitely has that sense of the numinous. He has that sense of kind of the, the the big picture. The I don't want to use the word spiritual because uh, Clark was always a, a rugged materialist. He was always an atheist. He was always. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's never really interested in kind of exploring um, like spirituality, but I think Clark uh, kind of had this idea that there are bigger things in the universe and that those things might be not quite as knowable as we would like them to be. And a lot of his later work kind of explores this idea of kind of uh, that the things that we call religious might have some kind of physical manifestation, but we just don't quite understand what they are. Um, yeah. So- and um, I, I have read I have read the Sentinel. Uh, okay. I, I read that a lot, quite a while ago, though. It's it's probably been probably twenty years now since I read it. And I read that because some of the themes in it attracted me to it. Uh, I mean, I've been a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft for the longest mm-hmm. while, and you could argue that some of his stuff is kind of proto sci-fi in a way. Yeah, um, absolutely. And a lot of his themes, like he he also was uh, apart from being a uh, uh, a woman fearing racist. <laughs> he was also, uh, in, in many times, a brilliant writer. 
and he was also an atheist. And he explored a lot of these themes, like human evolution, basically how small we are in the universe, how there are things that are unknowable to us that we shouldn't probably not know, we should probably not step into, you know, before we're ready at the very least. So when I heard about the Sentinel, it seemed like there was a lot of themes that were similar in that story, and there were. It it does have that kind of uh, same sort of through line of um, us being very, very small in the universe and not being the most important thing in the world. Well, Lovecraft Lovecraft kind of says, you know, there are these old ones. There's this this kind of these, these eldritch horrors, and that contact with them will drive you mad because they are so big and so alien and so mm-hmm. um, malevolent in some cases that uh, you're just better off not knowing. Clark kind of approaches that same general idea, but kind of says this is something that we can investigate and this is something yeah. that like, as human beings we should investigate um, but ultimately kind of leaves you with, particularly in 2001, leaves you with a lot of kind of big questions rather than, rather than specific answers. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think uh, the novel, 2001, is very much kind of focused on these are the methods that we use to explore this, these are the different ideas, and that was what, like, me as an 11-year-old responded to, this idea that the universe is hypothetically knowable, even though it's kind of big and, you know, the whole point is the space between, you know, Earth and Jupiter is so massive, and yet it's such a tiny, tiny fraction of the length to the mm-hmm. uh, nearest star, which is some microscopic fraction across the galaxy, which is this, so the universe is this giant thing, but we can kind of, we can hypothetically understand it if we approach it kind of systematically and with the, the will to do so. Yeah. And the novel is all about that. Uh, Kubrick kind of like, despite kind of really taking the literal events of the novel and uh, translating them pretty directly, Kubrick kind of turns it into this uh, meditation on uh, unknowability and I think um, the film is <laughs> arguably about kind of this, uh, the, the squares, these, these kind of very uh, dull and kind of, you know, straight-laced human beings coming into contact with uh, basically psychedelia in some ways. Like, that's yeah, certainly they're, they're, the, the perspective, you know. Um, Kubrick was, the, the film almost is a uh, repudiation in some ways of, of the novel, and I think in some interesting ways. Everyone who looks at 2001 immediately responds to just the aesthetics of it mm-hmm. instantly because it is so striking. I mean, uh, I, I saw 2001 the first time as a kid. Uh, it, it played on TV a lot. So I, 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 I don't say I'd necessarily watched it all the way through as a child, but I had always seen it in parts here and there. It's just Saturday mornings and stuff like that it would play. Um, I had a, I had a recorded version from like TNT or something. Yeah. Like TNT had aired a uh, like without commercial interruption widescreen version of it when that was like oh, unique. Nice. Um, yeah. sometime in the early nineties in ninety two or ninety three, and I had recorded it at that point, and that was the version that I had to watch. And I used to rewatch it, you know, on a fairly regular basis. But only watching it for this podcast was the first time because it's on Netflix right now. It was the first time like watching it. Like high definition on a big TV, you know. I um, mean, it just a very different experience watching it, like in in really good quality version. All the way I got to this week, so it was yeah. it was really nice to get to see it. Uh, sorry, I was I, I was just telling you that that the version that I grew up with was the like recorded off TV version. You know? yeah. Uh, but yeah, so of course the stuff I was watching was like you know four by three, uh, yeah. chopped chopped up for TV shit. But yeah, I, I always liked it. I always responded to it. I didn't understand it as a kid because I, I would see it in fragmented 
parts, basically, right? And actually, that's kind of how I watched a lot. Sadly, that's how I watched a lot of sci-fi back in the day. Because, you know, as a kid, I couldn't necessarily concentrate on stuff, especially a long sort of meditative film like this where nothing mm-hmm. really happens for a lot of it. But then when I finally got to the point where I could appreciate it, you look at this film, and I love the way it's designed. You, you look at the spaceships, you look at the clothing, you look at the haircuts, everything like that. Screams to me what 1950s sci-fi could have done if it had the budget to do it. Yeah. Um, because all of these guys, you're right, there, there, there is a throwback kind of aspect to the actual people. The technology is a bit futuristic, and I, I will say this, um, out of all the classic sci-fi films that you can think of, that I can think of at the very least, this is one of the few that, even though some of the technology comes off a little dated, uh, especially visually, for the most part, I think it still holds up as looking futuristic and utilitarian. And, the, yeah, that's the way the spaceship well, should look. This this is where um, you know Kubrick basically hired a bunch of ad people and a bunch of like design people. You know, th- this is really a triumph, not of... I mean, this isn't really a triumph of narrative. The narrative is is what it is, and I think that there's some really interesting stuff kind of going on thematically and idea-wise. But ultimately, this is a film that's about how it looks. Yeah. And Kubrick knew that and, you know, not only kind of brought his Kubrickian genius to it, um, but hired a bunch of people to, like, design, like, okay, this is what an ad is going to look like. This is what a logo is going to look like you know, 33 years later, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, kind of thing. Um, and so, no, like 2001, the film doesn't look very much like 2001 as it happened, but it does kind of look like, you know, the Apollo program 30 years later, you yeah. know, it, um, at the time that this film was released, I mean, this film was in production for four years. And in fact, Clark and Kubrick collaborated very deeply on the story. Mm-hmm. Um, the novel very closely matches the film. I mean, yeah. even though the novel kind of goes to a lot more depth and kind of explains some things that are left unexplained in the in the film. And uh, there's the, the biggest difference between the uh, the film and the um, novel is that uh, in the in the novel the monolith is in orbit around Saturn, not Jupiter, and mm-hmm. so there's flyby of Jupiter, and then they go on to Saturn, which was basically just like they're making a film, and it's just kind of like, yeah, there's no point in like doing that. Let's just jump and just do it around Jupiter. So well, uh, um, they apparently they couldn't reproduce Saturn because every everything like this is all practical effects. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then apparently they couldn't reproduce Saturn's rings properly for the for the effects. So oh, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I think uh, Donald Trumbull did the uh, effects here, yes. and then um, kind of later on would go on to uh, to do Silent Running. And mm-hmm. he used a lot of what he what he learned on this film to uh, kind of do that. Sorry, we said we said in the pre-show we weren't going to talk about the special effects, but uh, uh, well, we're we're just we're just uh, we're just skimming through it because I mean, uh, the, honestly, we're not even we're not even scratching the surface of this stuff. Uh, right. uh, actually, Douglas Trumbulls is his name, but uh, he's uh, he's gone on to do a lot of amazing stuff himself. Yeah. This this is one of the most studied films of all time. And so mm-hmm. like, it is, it is a little bit like M, you know, yeah. where it's like, what, what do we have to say? We're just a couple of fucking assholes on the internet. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, the one reason I wanted to do it is just because it meant so much to me personally growing up and, and I wanted to revisit it and talk about it with you. So, um, and that's yeah. kind of, um, the one thing I would recommend there is this, uh, and I did share this to the Facebook group, to our Facebook group earlier this week. I would recommend anybody who's interested in this film and kind of the, the process of the writing of it and the production of it. Um, there is a book called The Lost Worlds of 2001. 
Um, it was published in 72, and it includes a lot of the kind of early drafts of kind of early chapters and the in the different things, the different ideas that Clark and Kubrick had in terms of like how to, because they had this idea of kind of following on from the Sentinel, basically, of kind of, mm-hmm. oh, there's this thing we find on the moon, and what is it? And it sends off this signal, and maybe it's a threat, and maybe it's not. But they had this idea of kind of following on from that, but they really didn't know where to go from there. Like what, And, and that story can kind of go anywhere. Yeah. And so there are lots of different kind of ideas that, that they kind of played with. And uh, I actually did read that book many years ago, I mean 20 years ago, um, but I would, uh, I did kind of glance back through it because there is a PDF available online, and you can um, you can read that for free. I would I would recommend uh, kind of googling that, the Lost Worlds of two thousand one, and at least giving it a glance. I think it's it's worth uh, visiting kind of how the mindset of of Clark and Kubrick changed over the four year production process of the film. Yeah, just going back to the. Uh... Just sort of how the humans are presented in this film. And I think that's one of the major criticisms people go for, of course, is that A, the movie's too long. B, the actors are all kind of like mannequins, basically just being posed by Kubrick and not really having much emotion. I think a lot of people kind of miss that that was kind of the point, though, in a lot of ways. Because when you think about it, these monoliths basically represent sort of touchstones that uh, every leap in our evolution is sort of is going to strive towards. So I think he's kind of trying to make a point that we've become so, uh, our race as a whole at, in 2001 in this, in this story has become so comfortable and so stagnant and so Spartan and so dull really. And I think that was kind of the point in a lot of ways to, to present that Bowman touching this uh, monolith are basically flying into this monolith uh, mm-hmm. around Jupiter is sort of the, you know, the launching point to our next stage in evolution to some degree. And yeah, I mean the, the whole, to, to me, like a, the characters are kind of not the point, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you've really only got, I mean, there, you, you kind of read a bunch of like cast members and, you know, like, like there are only four actors that, that mean anything to this film, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, you know, uh, the actor who plays Haywood Floyd, and then the two members of the crew, uh, Bowman and Poole, and then Hal 9000. You know, th- those are those are the only four people that mean anything. Um, there's, uh, you know, not to say there aren't other talented actors in the film, you know, the the uh, yeah. the body actors who did the, the proto-men at the early and, the, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, great performances. I'm not. I'm not complaining about their acting. This isn't a film that's fundamentally about these people. It's about the world in which these people are. I also think that when you look at the uh, nature of the communications that these characters get from Earth, you, you know, there's a conversation that Floyd has with his young daughter early in the film. And, uh, you know, it's just very like, oh, and your birthday is coming up, and I'll, I'll get you such and such for your birthday, et cetera, et cetera. And then, um, you know, uh, Poole's birthday happens while he's uh, on the Discovery, and his parents call him, and it's like, oh, and it's kind of meant to be banal and dull. Yeah. Like it's meant to, like it's meant to kind of uh, demonstrate that um, even in this kind of future world where we are kind of uh, surrounded by space and we're doing this astonishing thing, ultimately our, our lives are, are fairly, um, you know, banal in comparison to, to all these things. And uh, well, the, the, the best visual joke uh, I think that really represents that idea is uh, when you see Haywood Floyd, reading the instructions for the zero-gravity toilet. That's an extended sequence in the novel, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, because the instruction, and you can find it online, you can find the full instructions for it, 
it just goes into excruciating detail. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just it, it just one step below actually describing what your shit should look like when it comes out. Yep. I mean, it's it, it's ridiculous and it's so absurd. And every time I see him leaning over and intently looking at, at the zero gravity toilet instructions, I fucking laugh because it's... yeah, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> the, there it's in the sequence that like uh, during that sequence where he's he's on the flight first to the base station and then to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, he, there's kind of a two legs of this journey. Huge sections of this are basically just a travelogue, yeah. and uh, and that was really common in in the science fiction novels of the period, where people were like, space was like a fad, you know, in 1968. Like yeah. Apollo was all over the place, and people were really interested in just like how do you pee in space and how do you eat in space and like space food and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, this, this film was something of a hit. I mean, it was, it was a really big hit at the time. It was kind of a slow build and um, there were, there were kind of interesting responses from some audiences and and such, but you know, this was, you know, we kind of look at it today. um, You know, I think as a kid, I was kind of like, man, why is this so long? And why is this so like, it's, it's not that I'm not interested in it. It's not that I don't like it, but man, it's like, it, why do we have to spend so much time just watching, you know, yeah. <laughs> floating pen, you know, in, in, um, you know, in, in, in a jetliner cabin, but it's like, well, no, this is like super high special effects at the time. We're demonstrating uh, a bunch of these effects are done in camera, you know, so there's yeah. not like a, uh, so, so when you do have like a, a spinning wheel and you've got these, guys kind of running around and like how did they do that well they actually had like a spinning rotating thing that they could like mount a camera yeah. on and um that that's how they shot it you know this isn't like today you do it all in cgi but at the time they're actually like filming these things everything and, was you know, done down to the smallest detail to make it look real because it basically was real to a certain yeah, extent it was real you're just not in zero gravity you're just you're just making it you know happen in this way which I think is, uh, you know, it's such the Kubrick thing, right? You know, it's, and uh, then he destroyed all of his fucking special effects and models and everything. He just destroyed he did, them all. You know? <laughs> I, um, you mentioned the design and like particularly the design of, like the HAL nine thousand I. Such a iconic thing. Yeah, you know, it's such like that, and that you know, it sells the character. Like it, there's not any. There's not, there's nothing moving around. There's no, there's no like sense of like the the um, the characters winking at the audience or the directors winking at the audience. It's just this red eye that's just looking, well, and it's yeah. not even malevolent, mm-hmm. but it's such this like brilliant piece of design where this like this all seeing eye sort of idea. Well, yeah, because um, you don't, you can't, you can't uh, tell as an audience what it's actually thinking because there, there was actually some, uh, from what I've read, there's been, there was early ideas to make uh, Hal essentially uh, a robot, you know, to make, right. h- give him a body, give him a physicality, give him movements, give him body language. And they decided against that because this is way more effective. You're right. I mean, all there is is that eye and you can't penetrate it. You You can't really know what he's thinking at any given time. And it actually makes the suspense much more interesting because if you had a robot there, one of their biggest fears, honestly, was uh, they were afraid that uh, any sort of robot they depicted would be incredibly dated very right. soon afterwards, So, which is probably pretty true. I mean, it would probably end up looking like the one from uh, or Robbie the Robot or whatever, right? Um, right, right. So. 
I, I would be fascinated to see the design of it to kind of see what they were doing, particularly kind of having read uh, The Lost Worlds of 2001 and there are some, you know, kind of hypothetical ideas. And one of the things that they're trying to connect is this idea of like what a future intelligence, what a, you know, advanced civilization intelligence will look like. And basically it's like, we leave our meat behind very, very mm-hmm. quickly in our future evolution, and we all kind of become these computers, basically. Yeah. Um, and so there is this kind of thematic connection, like how 9000, he's not just, you know, this kind of malevolent computer, because I, I don't I wouldn't even argue he's malevolent. He's, he's not, he's, no. He's, he's very dedicated to the mission. He's reasoning in a, in a very concrete way, but he's reasoning in a way, and because he's been given conflicted mission objectives, yes, which we really only learn in the sequel. I mean, yeah. you know, I think in two thousand one, and we'll get into that. Um, but but he he's he's you know certainly his his uh, the reason he does things are ambiguous in two thousand one. Certainly, you don't get the sense of like he's he hates Bowman and Poole. Mm-hmm. He's just reasoning in a way that's different than a human reasoning. And I think that's connected to this kind of alien intelligence. Like, as as alien as Hal's logic is to to Bowman and Poole, the alien's logic is that much more alien or that much more um, advanced or that much in, more inscrutable to Hal 9000 in that yeah. way, you know? And I think that that is part of the point, part of the thematic point of the film. Um, it, they really don't hammer at home. There's really not a sense of that. One of the things uh, you, you kind of mentioned that the, uh, I mean, for me, rewatching this, it's like, man, these guys are all like <laughs> geeky white guys, you know, <laughs> like, like all these guys, they have like really, um, you know, like square haircuts and they're all mm-hmm. like clean shaven and they're all like, they, they speak like characters out of 1950s instructional films. Well, yeah, they, um, they, uh, they all look like the cast of like every uh, low rent 50s sci-fi movie you can think of, you know, all the Americans with the clean mm-hmm. cut, you know, I, I do think that, uh, Caradolia is uh, he—he's probably the best actor of the bunch. Um, he is, um, except I mean, for uh, Douglas Rain, who is, uh, you know, just with his voice is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really, I really think that was good casting. I've seen him in some other stuff, and he—he he is a really fine actor. It—it um, uh, it just goes back. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt there just for a sec, but he—he he, he goes back. Um, going back to the uh, idea that all these people are sort of comfortable and Spartan and. Uh, just kind of dull, just because they live in environments that allow them to be, and generally, and then you got these professionals, like these these two astronauts are professionals are up there, they're mostly talking professional jargon, they're mostly just going by their daily, day-to-day routines, because uh, that's basically what they have to do almost 24-7 anyway, while they're up there. I mean, in the book, it's clear you spend, like, a year and a half or something, like, mm-hmm. actually getting to Jupiter. So, I mean, you know, like, imagine being, I mean, imagine you and I being in this kind of enclosed space together. We'd run out of a little, run out of shit to say. <laughs> you're just sitting there, and you're just, like, you're literally playing chess with the computer, because what else am I going to do, you know? Yeah, like, you know. but uh, you, you do see uh, uh, Dilia's acting come out uh, in, the, in the sequence where he's locked out of the Odyssey, and he has to... Uh, try to get back in by by basically uh, sort of ham-fistedly sticking the back of the pod to the emergency entrance or whatever and mm-hmm. blowing himself into back into the ship. But uh, you see where he's talking to uh, HAL 9000. He's like, can you hear me, HAL? Can you hear me? And um, depending on the cut of the film you see, some people, some cuts of this actually cut out like the multiple times he asks if 
Hal can hear him. And, you know, did, did you did you hear what I said, Hal? Blah, blah, blah. Um, which actually add a lot to the suspense in the film, I find, because it kind of makes Hal feel a little bit more sadistic because he's basically mm-hmm. ignoring Bowman for, for an extended period of time. Almost like he's contemplating, what will I do with this this guy? But you, you, you see the you see the stress starting to come out on his face because he's finally put up against a situation where he has to actually deal with something. Uh, you know, he, there's actually some discomfort involved. So he's actually he actually does a really good acting job, I think. In the, in the novel, while uh, Bowman is um, approaching Hal to uh, to disconnect the the higher logic circuits, Hal is uh, talking to Bowman the entire mm-hmm. time, and uh, basically. I don't want to say pleading for his life, but certainly, uh, you know, no, Dave, I'm feeling fine now. I know that I, you know, but um, he kind of goes on into some detail and kind of talks about, uh, you kind of hear him, uh, you know, reciting uh, like prime numbers and and doing all Mm. kinds of stuff to, to like demonstrate his, his fitness for duty and that sort of thing. Um, There, there's some really, really interesting stuff in terms of the way that uh, Hal is portrayed in the book is this kind of very um you know he's an artificial intelligence but he's also meant to be really really sympathetic yeah whereas i think the film pushes a little bit harder on the you know it's this malevolent alien presence just a little bit more i mean you know kubrick definitely had you know again what happens doesn't change like when Mm -hmm. you when you just kind of summarize it but the the meaning of certain actions definitely does. I, I find the uh, the kind of daisy daisy scene heartbreaking. I mean, I don't know if that's just because you know I come at it from the book first and foremost, and it's I mean, as as heartbreaking as it is in the film, and as like visually iconic as it is in the film, uh, the novel just sells that so much more because you you actually hear Hal go back to like his earliest time when he was first yeah. activated. And you see, like him saying, like I was activated on such and such day in 1992, and you know, I, yeah. you know, and then you you see him like this, today's my first birthday, and I'm being introduced to some of my creators, and I'm saying, you know, this is a song that I learned to, to speak, and you, and you get it in the in the film, but it, it's even longer in the book, you know. It yeah, it gets it gets to the point where it feels like Bowman's lobotomizing a child, you know, like <laughs> he is, he is yeah. because he has to. Mm-hmm. Um, you also get, um, after he does shut Hal down, you get this extended, uh, sequence before he reaches the monolith where it kind of details what he, um, has to do to survive. And like now that Hal isn't around anymore, like he has to, uh, you know, manually recycle the air. He has to manually mm-hmm. kind of make all the food and all that sort of thing. And it's easier cause he's alone on the ship. Now he doesn't have to worry about the hibernating passengers or anything, but, um, the the book definitely uh, pushes a lot harder on this idea that Bowman is now absolutely alone. He is further away from any other human being than any other human being ever has been by, you know, three orders of magnitude sort of thing. And, uh, you know, what that means for his psychology to literally be sitting in this spaceship for months just, you know, taking care of his own needs, but without any kind of sense of, you know... <laughs> There's another person, even just like some other person working with me, you know, kind of in the same environment as me. And, yeah, uh, that uh, that sort of uh, idea of like potential, like uh, deep space, like psychosis or whatever, yeah, right, yeah. is is a, is a is a constant theme that I that I've seen in 
uh, a multitude of sci-fi stories I've read back in the day. Like one uh, a theoretical uh, proposition of what the effects of like a warp drive travel would be like, where you actually don't see anything outside the ship. Uh, it's just total blackness, and and that's all you see for like how many years you're in warp drive to get to a certain place, right? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, there, there's lots of there's lots of stuff like that, and uh, I mean, you know, ultimately, I mean, one of the lines in the in the book is, you know, that as a space traveler, as someone, you know, kind of, you know, you're you simultaneously have to be like agoraphilic and claustrophilic mm-hmm. because there's this huge expanse of deep space outside your the hull of your ship, and this is, I mean, almost literally an infinite expanse. I mean, it, it yeah. basically is an infinite expanse. But within that, you're cramped in these tiny, tiny, tiny quarters. And so it takes a, a very special psychology and class of person to really thrive in this environment. And that's what, that's what the Apollo missions kind of found. I mean, you know, that not anyone can do this. You know? yeah. um, and, it is, and it is like a, a real challenge finding people who would be able to, to actually you know, spend years at a time in a tuna can traveling <laughs> to some far yeah. off planet, you know, and, and, and never mind your mind. Uh, also just the uh, physical effects alone, like deep space radiation, the effects yeah. that has on people, just the fact that your muscles and your body basically atrophies and turns into jelly. <laughs> if you, if you stay right. out there too long. <laughs> well, and, and now we have uh, kind of long-term space stations and you can actually interview people who have spent, you know, a year in space mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, Clark was, was kind of thinking of is that, uh, you know, there is supposed to be this kind of rotating section that provides gravity, that provides a centripetal force for, um, for this kind of a simulated gravity. So people on the ship can, you know, kind of maintain their muscle mass. Um, but, but, uh, we don't have that in real life and, and, you know, astronauts will go and spend a year in space and then like literally have months of rehabilitation once they come down. Yeah, because I mean... Um, they can't walk anymore, you know? Yeah, uh, Canadian astronaut there, Chris Hansen, who was up uh, a couple years ago or whatever, He when he came back, he basically couldn't walk. He, he was basically like a crippled seven-year-old man for quite a while before he recovered, right? So Yeah, I know. Um, you know, it, it's interesting how, you know, now, you know, we're 40 years after, you know, this movie, uh, or more than that, we're almost 50 years mm-hmm. after this movie. And uh, we've we've learned so much more. Um, I don't know. What do you think of uh, the idea that? I mean, obviously, the idea that we were going to have like massive rotating space stations. You know, thirty-five years after uh, you know men landed on the moon feels really crazy ambitious by today's standards. Like the idea that that was ever going to happen. But, I mean, certainly, like, if you think about, okay, so in 1961, Kennedy says, we're going to go to the moon by 69. If that level of, like, funding and interest in public, you know, kind of devotion to the project had continued, like, it kind of was like, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's a little bit ambitious, you know, for there to be, like, commercial space liners, like, carrying huge numbers of passengers, passengers between the Earth and the moon in 30 years. But it doesn't feel like completely crazy, you know what I mean? No, like, we're, I mean we're we're slowly kind of getting there. We're we're I, I'd say we're like thirty or forty years behind a lot of the stuff that's presented in the, mm. in a film to a certain degree. I, I don't know what even really the practicality of having like a, a Hilton hotel 
floating around the space really is except for like really really rich people and you know considering how how much of the world's population how small percent now owns like 99 percent of the world's wealth they're welcome to fucking go up there and then have the goddamn thing crash into our atmosphere and burn up as far as i'm concerned but um (laughs) <laughs> but that's but I mean, a redistribution of wealth right there. Yeah, some fireworks for all the poor kids. Um, yeah, no, for for the rest of us. You know. Yeah, there there are possibilities there. A lot of the stuff that is sort of posed in this in this film is is theoretically possible. The the theories are down. They can a lot of the stuff can be done. It's just a matter of getting out of our own way and actually getting there really more than anything else well, but a, a space station is such like a really great idea just mm-hmm. because the whole problem with like long distance space travel and and this is where like you know I have a background in science so I'll talk about this you know uh, is getting in and out of gravity wells you know it's it's mm-hmm. the, the, you know 90% of the energy you need to travel from where I'm sitting right now to Jupiter it's just getting me out of Earth orbit, out of out of the Earth's uh, you know gravitational well. Um, once you're up there, you can kind of go wherever you want from there. It's 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 way way easier. And so that was kind of the the argument for you know like having this kind of space station that's it's this is this like kind of transfer hub. And I yeah um, certainly in the in the novel and I think in the uh, the film sells this as well, but you know, maybe not in quite as concrete a way, you know, there are several settlements on the moon by 2001 mm. that, you know, kind of have, you know, not just kind of technical people, but, but have kind of, you know, people just kind of living on the moon. It's, it's still kind of pioneering kind of thing, but it's, it's definitely not like a, you know, it's, it's not quite as abstract as like the, the scientific station in, in Antarctica today, you know, where, you know, it really is just like a bunch of scientists who kind of live there, you know, part time and, have a little bit of a support staff. It's it's not quite that austere, but it's close to it. Um, I'd, I'd like to think that actually, uh, you remember that old, uh, I guess it's a British series, Space 1999? I do. I, I, I kind of like to think that's actually going on at the on the moon right at that right. point. Yeah. Because, because when you look at the transport ship they take to the monolith on the moon, it actually kind of looks like Space 1999 basically just ripped off the design of that ship somewhat for their for their ships on that series. I mean, <laughs> 2001 A Space Odyssey was so influential on so much of the look of stuff. Um, the look of the moon, like the, the design of the of the moon and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. was actually based on paintings by a name named um, Chelsea Bonestall, I believe is his name. And he basically, all the like classic 1940s uh, space covers of like Astounding Magazine or Amazing Stories or, you know, all that sort of thing. All that's done by like one dude back in the 40s <laughs> and 50s. And, um, you know, the design of a lot of this stuff, I mean, you know, when they're kind of standing on the moon while they're, uh, you know, flying over the moon, as you as you kind of mentioned, or, um, you know, as they're kind of approaching the monolith, you know, the a lot of the look of that comes directly from that kind of stuff. And uh, I don't know, I see this as this sort of uh, taking this kind of golden age science fiction ideas and then like, you know, basically slamming it right up into the counterculture, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I talked a lot in the kind of the, the, the neo-noir stuff about kind of the way that the, the seventies counterculture, uh, was, was very much in this kind of, uh, well, Nixon won and now we're all fucked. And that's sort <laughs> of what, that's sort of that, that kind of cultural malaise that, that the counterculture lost. 
this is uh before that this is this is kind of in that in that period where there was still some hope that um that we could see past our differences and we could uh you know actually make the world a better place through reason and science and through kind of empathy and and that sort of thing and that in this kind of alternate 2001 yeah there's still russians and uh they happen to all be leggy blondes for some reason. <laughs> uh, you know, there's like one dude and then he's got like three, you know, brilliant leggy blonde women around him. That's just what Russia is apparently. I yeah. don't know. Um, you know, I've never been to Russia, but you know, that that's what I'm told. That's yes. just, that's just kind of what it is. Um, certainly <laughs> in, this, in this film, that's the picture we get. I am kind of like, well, if the Russians are actually the ones who, actually have women in their scientific crew maybe they were the ones we should have been following along <laughs> maybe maybe it's uh you know maybe maybe there's this subtle message being taught but i don't think so i think yeah. it's exotic you know russian woman but i don't know it's 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 uh it is kind of this this measure of hope that we can kind of see past our differences the novel is much more obvious in the way it connects the use of technology to feed ourselves like a moon watcher in the, in the novel, you know, he kind of discovers uh, using the, uh, the bone to, to kill the wildebeest to, to kill the, uh, to kill the taper and then to, to keep the other tribes at bay. But the violence, uh, the hunting ritual, which is, you know, meant to provide meat and food and sustenance is very clearly connected to the uh, desire to protect our space and to kill the other you know, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that that whole sequence in the movie, um, it isn't as clearly spelt out, but um, you, you see you see the sequence with, with Moonwatcher playing around the bone, and then suddenly he, you, you get visualizations, I guess, of in his head of, I can use this to kill these things. These, yeah. these annoying things that are sticking their long noses in my face every time I'm trying to eat berries and shit. I can kill these things and eat them. And so when he throws the bone up in the air and then it goes to the thing in orbit, that's actually supposed to be a nuclear weapon of some sort yeah. a nuclear weapon yeah. platform instead of a satellite, but it's not quite spelled out in the actual movie. So very little is literally spelled out. in yeah. the you know, I mean, Kubrick, Kubrick really lets the audience kind of, you know, interpret as they will. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, I think that's what people find frustrating about the film. I mean, honestly, I mean, you mentioned the length earlier. I mean, it's two and a half hours long, you know, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's long, but for what it's doing, it's really, I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, the first 30 minutes and the final 30 minutes are all dialogue free, you know, because yeah. the first 30 minutes are, the first 20 minutes are just the stuff with the, the proto-humans in Africa. And then you get basically 10 minutes of travelogue. And then the last 30 minutes are all the, uh, the psychedelic stuff. And then, you know, Bowman in the hotel room, sort of thing at the end so you've really only got 90 minutes of like <laughs> hypothetically there are human beings on screen who will you know kind of speak to each other <laughs> and there are kind of long stretches which are really just like this kind of contemplative almost religious uh you know and, and i use that term guardedly because it you know it's not it's not like you know glorifying well, god it's kind of glorifying the universe you know sort yeah of. well this kind of feels like the um sort of the rationalist humanist answer to like the biblical epics of the 1950s in a certain way to me anyway, uh, I sort of saw a bit of a connection that way. Um, especially like some of the symbolism, like I, I guess some of the symbolism around the monolith is specifically like uh, religious in, in nature, like uh, especially Eastern religion. I think, I think I read something about the sun coming over 
coming over the monolith. Like you got that, you got those two different shots, or maybe even more, where it's like point of view directly looking up the monolith, and you see the right. sun coming up over it. And apparently, there's some sort of uh, religious symbolism connection there as well. But um, I just kind of saw it as like every time you see that, it's sort of like here's the here's the new dawn of humanity. Here's here's the right. new here's a step forward. Right, just kind of visually represented. So. Yeah, no, there's a lot of really, really interesting imagery here. And, I mean, we've, we're have we kind of jumping around because there's no way to do this systematically mm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> without basically going, like, minute by minute. Like, 2001 A Space Odyssey, a minute at a time. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that would be something Ebert would do. I'm, I'm sure this is probably one of the ones he did yeah, his yeah, no. frame-by-frame study on, right? They did, yeah, in fact, I would uh, highly recommend he did a great movies essay on this. And uh, he he talks, I mean, very uh, eloquently about uh, about the film, and uses the uh, he talks about the uh, the throwing of the bone to the uh, to the nuclear station. He says is the largest flash forward in cinema history, <laughs> and uh, I yeah, I, four million years is about as far as any film ever ever flashes forward. So yeah. you know, I'll, I'll I'll give it that. Um, it, it's a uh, you know, man. I think we'll, I think it should. Uh... We'd be amiss if we didn't talk about the music here for a sec, though. Um, sure. Just because it's so integral to the film, like it's so like richly weaved into basically every every bit of the film that without it, it's it's almost like just basically a different film altogether. I, I feel I can't listen to the Blue Denim Waltz without thinking of Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey. And I can't think of uh, well, actually, I can think of also uh, Sprack Zarthusa differently because I'm a wrestling fan. So I can think of Nature Boy Ric Flair who used it as a theme song for the longest time. But um, that's beside the point. Um, I, I guarantee you, he only did that because of 2001, though. So yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, the, just the awe that that song sort of inspires was the whole or, idea, or that, or that bit from uh, Spaceballs where they're uh, you know. Dun 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the soundtrack originally this this was just going to have like a sort of a traditional score for film mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, they originally had Alex North composing stuff for this, but Kubrick basically just said "fuck that," I'm not using his score, and forgot to tell him. By the way, he never he, he paid him and never told him. So I guess when he went to see the film, he saw that none of his music was actually in it. But uh, it, was, it was originally supposed to be Alex North. Uh, there was another guy who was also hired on who was supposed to do stuff as well, also wrote a score for it that just totally got scrapped. Instead, uh, Kubrick decided to use a bunch of stuff from... Um, I, I looked up this pronunciation so I get it right. I, I was going to say uh, Gregory Leggetti, but uh, it, apparently it's pronounced uh, George Leggetti, and he did all kinds of these um, polyphonic kind of compositions. So basically, Kubrick stole his music without paying him, and without telling him as well. So you get so you get uh, fucking Lux Arturnia, Atmospheres, Requiem, Adventures, all by uh, Ligeti, uh, in part at least, different parts, uh, repeated some of them throughout the film. And apparently uh, Ligeti also didn't find this out until he watched the film, and he actually, had, he actually sued Kubrick and won money. <laughs> so apparently it was a pretty costly... Well, good, good for him, you know, yeah. although, although this film, you know... When, <laughs> I apologize. I'm going to be slightly insulting here. Would he would have give a shit about this guy if it hadn't been for uh, <laughs> pretty much? Know, like, <laughs> although, although I, I will say, uh, Ligeti's stuff is pretty goddamn unique. He was like the sort of the first 
pioneer of like a lot of the techniques he used, and yeah. and his I stuff mean, is the, the music is gorgeous. Like like mm. I mean, do do I need to say the music is gorgeous? I apologize. Yeah, yeah. The, the music is phenomenal in this film, and rewatching it, I was just struck by it. Like I was. You know, I typically will listen to the scores for the film while I'm doing the plot summary. Like, kind of gets me in that right headspace to to kind of do it. And um, I mean, Ligeti, like, I've listened to this music again as a child, like over and over and over again. And now it's all on YouTube, so I can just, you know, yeah, Ligeti stuff works so well in really giving this sort of air of cosmic dread, like how small we are in the universe. Like his stuff is always used in those sections of the film where where mankind is just run up against something it doesn't understand and can't properly deal with. Uh-huh. If it was, if it was made today, it would be a Philip Glass score, but yeah, know. but uh, the Ligeti stuff, I mean, that's the closest I've ever seen to like the perfect kind of music for like a HP Lovecraft inspired film. Like yeah, his yeah, stuff yeah. should be used in those films, but of course they probably have to pay for it at this point. So it's stealing it like Hubert <laughs> did. Uh, but yeah, of course you get, you get the Blue Danube as well, and you get uh, also Sprat Zarathustra. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. Uh, also Sprat Zarathustra, I believe. Zarathustra, okay, well, that was close. Whatever. I, pro- I probably fucked that up. So yeah. you know, no, nobody, everybody, go to the Facebook, go to our Facebook group, and tell us how to pronounce this. That's the uh... yeah. You know what? Richard Strauss is dead, so fuck him. Um, <laughs> and then of course you have Daisy Bell, which is just an old traditional song that. Uh, I think I think uh, I think that rose to popularity in like uh, fucking vaudeville and stuff like that. That was kind yeah, of yeah. Uh, one of those kind of songs. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, the, without the sound, this is one of the this is one of those films that you think about and you just can't think about without the soundtrack. Like Once Upon a Time in the West and something something yeah. like that, where it's just so in, integrally weaved into the fabric of the film. And uh, I mean, the, the score is very top. You know, it's it's very top level on this. You know, yeah. and and. Uh, you know, especially since there are huge sequences of the film that don't have dialogue, you need some kind of score or some kind of sound design or something in order to really like sell what's going on. The score is phenomenal here. Um, one other element I'll mention because I think we are kind of moving into 2010, and I, mm-hmm. I just rewatching the first 20 minutes of this, the Donna Man sequence, I was struck by how gorgeous the photography is. And those um, are uh, those are actual photographs. That's not filming in. Yeah, it's yeah, not, yeah. yeah, it's all soundstage stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. It's it's definitely it's definitely uh it's definitely on a soundstage, and it looks like it's on a soundstage, but it's gorgeous nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just wanted to to point out how you know those those kind of wide expanses. It almost looks like a western, you know. Yeah. But it's 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 um it's supposed to be the the origins of humanity, and I and I really responded to the photography in this uh, in this kind of watch through for this podcast because I. I hadn't really noticed the last time I watched it, like how gorgeous, you know, just the rock formations in the in the sky and everything were. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 truly truly gorgeous stuff, and uh, I think people that kind of overlook those those first twenty minutes and the power of the the cinema of those first uh, that first sequence are um, ignoring something really wonderful, you know. So uh, I'll just. Yeah. Uh, Kind of leave it at that. Um, we, we talk a lot about, oh yeah, there's a sequence with the apes and that's fine and it's iconic and all that sort of thing. But uh, and then it kind of moves on to the space stuff where we kind of care a little bit more. For me, that first 20 minutes is still really powerful, invigorating cinema. Uh, but you do have to kind of go with it as what it is, as opposed to kind of pretend it's something it's not. Yeah, 
Yeah, I agree. I'll just get to a couple little quick things about this, and then we'll move on to uh, 2010. The budget for this was 10.5 million to about 12 million estimated uh, worldwide. After all these years, I, I guess initially it made about roughly like 15 million or something like that domestically in its first little 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 run. But uh, as of now, it's about 190 million after all these years. So it's it, it's definitely gone up it's, a little. It's it's a it's it's done a little bit of business in the last 40 yeah. or 50 years. That's what you're saying. You know, there there are stories of like hippies who would like uh, buy tickets to it, and then like after the inter- during the intermission, they'd go smoke. Mm-hmm. And then they would come back and they would lie on the floors of the uh, of the theaters and just let the uh, the the psychedelic section kind of yeah. wash over them while they were high, <laughs> which I, I think is uh, that sounds great. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, I, I I totally believe those stories. So. Apparently, apparently that's how the film made money. Basically, was was the hippies <laughs> going to see it over and over again back in the late sixties? But wait, hippies don't have money. What are you talking about? They they were the rich hippies, the yeah, the, I... the, the, the the trust fund kids who uh, dropped out. <laughs> So this is this is uh, the first film to not use uh, narration for for a Kubrick film, apparently. So, uh, and he's only done it two other times. Also, um, Shining and Eyes Wide Shut were the only other two films he hasn't had narration on, apparently. So that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, uh, one other one other fact. I, I don't know if this was on your list to to do. So you mentioned the uh, the pan and scan version of this. Mm-hmm. He saw apparently a TV cut of this, a pan and scan version of it, and was so incensed with what they did to his cinematography that from here forward, he actually edited and shot all of his films to be viewable either in four by three or by you know in an anamorphic widescreen. So hmm. like, you know, the the DVD of Eyes Wide Shut um is actually a 4 by 3 DVD, but it's because Kubrick designed it to be viewed in either widescreen or full screen. Uh, wow. Which I think is amazing, you know, that that he he was so mad about it that all of his future films would look good in either format because he hated it so much. And that sounds like something only he would do. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine, like, as brilliant as Kubrick is, he then has to, like, do it twice, essentially? Yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> I, I, I totally believe it. I mean, just the stories of all the uh, takes for the stuff he was doing in The Shining, where he basically just yeah. turned Shelley Duvall into a sort into of a... gibbering gibbering wreck. Yeah. Into, into Jess Franco and... Uh, yeah. uh, What's the what's the film, version of One of the Living Dead? Basically, that's what Shelley Duvall was at the end of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this this was filmed in MGM's uh, Boar Hamwood Studios, right next to where the TV series The Prisoner was being shot. Apparently, and uh, apparently uh, Patrick McGowan borrowed some of the special effects footage of the uh, Starry Sky for one of the Prisoner episodes, but it never like officially made it into the series. But apparently, if you if you go to like. Uh, certain DVD releases and stuff of the prisoner. You can actually see it on uh, like the extras or something like that, I guess. So it's kind of interesting. I like the prisoner. So, uh, but I'm not doing a podcast on the prisoner, by the way, just, just in case you, you throw that out there. I think we've got enough podcasts. We're, we're, we're whores. We'll do anything. (laughs) If we get 15 people who are like, yeah, I listen to you talking about the prisoner. It's like, fuck, we're doing the prisoner. Done. Uh, um, according to Just Douglas, don't invite that Daniel asshole onto that podcast. That's what they'll I, say. I, I think. I think if if we did the prisoner, I'd, I'd make Jack Graham do every episode with us. That's what I'd do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, also, according to Douglas Trumbull, apparently the amount of footage shot 
was some 200 times the final length of the film. Well, you got to think, like, how many, like, shots or process shots where there are, you know, three or four different things layered into a yeah. single shot. And, uh, you know, the, the special effects, I mean, honestly, rewatching this now, A, it looks fucking phenomenal on the version on Netflix and, and HD that I watched. You know, it, it does not look dated. It looks, I mean, it, it doesn't look modern, but it looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. B, you got to think this is pre-CGI. All of this is practical. All of this is, you know, completely kind of done, you know, largely in camera or with very, very little post-processing. Mm-hmm. But it, it is kind of like you look at these old special effects, and even though you know, like, oh, it doesn't look, like, realistic, but you can't see the seams anymore because we're so used to looking at, like, you know, later stuff, you know. So it's... Yeah. uh uh, it looks phenomenal, and, and if you haven't watched this film recently, I mean, I'm kind of assuming most people listening to this have probably seen the film. If you haven't watched it in a while, or if it's only been on kind of an old TV the way I had only watched it, this thing is fucking gorgeous. I, I'm actually going to try to seek out if I can find it on a big screen. I'd love to see this on a big screen sometime. There was a 1998, 1999, 2001, and 2007 DVD release from uh, MGM and Warner. Also a 2007 Blu-ray release uh, that's region-free. I think probably your best bet are the 2007 releases. Uh, they look like they have the best uh, extras and stuff, like some commentaries and sort of th- sort of things like that. So um, you can find them out there. I, I was looking at pictures of them on uh, DVD Beaver, and they look pretty damn phenomenal. Like there's comparison shots and stuff like that. So awesome! Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I'll, uh, I don't own this on DVD. I just watched the uh, version on Netflix. But I'll, I'll I that may be uh, that may be on my list to, to purchase at some point. So. Yeah.
All right, uh, I guess we can move right on to 2010, the year we make contact from 1984. How are you going to convince your people to allow Americans to go on the flight? We are going to get there first, and you have the knowledge to make the trip work. I'm going on the flight. How far away is Jupiter? Far. Mommy said you're going to be asleep for a long time. Are you going to die? Dr. Floyd. Dr. Floyd. Dr. Arlov has encountered some strange data coming from Europa. I will send Max down with a pod. I wouldn't do that. Oh, really? You want to send a pod down there, send an unmanned one. Hey, a piece of pie. Cake. Piece of cake. Cake, yes. If this date is correct, then there's something down there. It is correct. It was organic. There was life. Is it moving? Yes. It's incredible. Listen for a minute. We've got to get out of here. I can't just order us to leave here for no reason. Well, forget reason. There's no time to be reasonable. Are you sure you are making the right decision? I think we should stop. You see, something's going to happen. What? Something wonderful. Uh, directed by Peter Hyams, who is probably best known for writing and directing Outland from 1981, and then or he, Sudden Death, the John yeah, Claude Van Damme, Todd Cop, and Sudden Death as well. Yeah, he kind of, kind of, uh, his directing career kind of petered uh, out after the, a while. The Mia Sarah film, Time Cop. That's the yeah. uh, that's the one I think of. You know, the Mia yeah. Sarah fucks John Claude Van Damme. That's what I think of when I think Peter Hyams. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, written by Arthur C. Clarke, uh, of course, based on the novel, and uh, Peter Hyams did the screenplay, and it's starring Roy Schreider as uh, Dr. Haywood Floyd, uh, taking up the role. John Lithgow as Dr. Walter Kurnow, Helen Murren as Tanya Kirbuk, Bob Balaban as Dr. R. Chandra, Kier Dolia reprising his role as Dave Bowman, Douglas Rain reprising his role as Hal 9000, Madeline Smith Osborne as Carolyn Floyd, Dana Eclair is Dmitry Mozovich, uh, and who cares about the rest of them, really? Um, <laughs> I didn't even need, need to list off the last two. So, yeah, if you have a synopsis for this one, Daniel. Haywood uh... Floyd, Roy Scheider, having basically resigned in disgrace after the disastrous discovery mission, is working on radio telescopes when he is approached by a member of the Soviet government working for their own space agency. The orbit of the abandoned discovery has become unstable, and it will crash into the moon Io long before an American mission can reach it. 
The Soviet ship Leonov, however, will reach the ship with plenty of time, but the Russian team lacks the specific system expertise to get the ship back into operation efficiently. An olive branch is offered between the scientists. Might a joint venture be worthwhile? Floyd sets the idea up the totem pole, and some political machination later it is agreed that Floyd himself could Jupiter on the mission, assisted by brilliant engineer Walter Kernow, John Lithgow, and artificial intelligence expert Dr. Chandra, Bob Balaban. Some months later, Floyd wakes from hibernation and discovers that the Russian team has discovered some primitive life on Europa, one of the frozen Galilean satellites otherwise thought barren. A probe sent to investigate the presence of chlorophyll, however, comes to a bad end. Someone or something is protecting the delicate ecosystem on the icy moon. After waking Chandra and Kurnow, the team begins to repair the broken-down discovery, Kurnow focusing on the basic systems of the downed spacecraft, while Chandra explores the delicate psychology of the damaged HAL 9000 computer, Douglas Rain. Just when there is some indication that the situation is getting under control by the scientists in orbit around Jupiter, however, the political situation on Earth deteriorates, and the American government orders the Americans to stay on board Discovery, avoiding the Leonov and the nasty communist influence. While on board Discovery, however, Floyd is approached by the ghostly apparition in the form of the thought-deceased Dave Bowman, Cardulia, warning that all humans must leave Jupiter's space within two days. When asked what will happen, the ex-human has no specific answer, merely answering, something wonderful. <laughs> in violation of his government's orders, Floyd meets with the only member of the Russian crew I particularly give a shit about, Tanya Kerbik, Helen Mirren, and proposes a bold plan. Since the Discovery has plenty of fuel but no life support systems, and the Lyonov has the life support but no fuel, by attaching the two ships and using Discovery as a sort of booster rocket, all the humans can leave Jupiter's space before Bowman's deadline. Tanya agrees, uh, reluctantly, and in a thrilling action sequence, everyone gets the fuck out of Dodge, just as a mass of millions of monoliths is seen eating the giant planet Jupiter alive. As all are escaping, the planet collapses in on itself and becomes a small star, later called Lucifer, and the four innermost moons are bathed in light and heat. A message from the alien presence, presumably he formerly known as Bowman speaking through Hal, sends a message. All these worlds are yours, except Europa. Attempt no landings there. Use them together. Use them in peace. In a final shot, the surface of Europa, now covered in swampland, is shown with a silent black monolith sitting, waiting for signs of intelligent life to nudge in the direction of spaceflight. That sums up a movie that feels like it's in a totally different universe in 2001, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, you know, uh, if 2001 is really all about, like, kind of exploring the numinous and, uh, you know, asking questions that maybe have no answers, 2010 is kind of about, like, providing unneeded answers to the questions of 2001. <laughs> um, the books are a lot more similar than the movies, I'll say that. You know, I mean, the, 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 because uh, the, the novel 2001 and the novel 2010, I mean, uh, they were written 16 years apart. And, I mean, it's definitely Clark kind of, like, using the... Uh, using the popularity of his earlier novel to kind of like answer questions and it was it was very much a money grab you know to some degree but at least there is this kind of sense of like okay i'm going to answer the questions you had at the end of 2001 and then pose more kind of big picture questions um whereas i think the the film even though again it follows the plot fairly well although i'm actually really interested to I'm going to ask you some questions about what you think is going on in certain scenes, okay. just because I know what's supposed to be going on, but that's because I've read the book. The the, the film definitely um, kind of ties things up with a little bow and really doesn't mm-hmm. even really approach some of these kind of big questions and these big ideas, you know, as to what does it mean that suddenly Jupiter is a, is a new star system and we have this alien intelligence that, you know, like a, 
the the book really kind of looks at these questions a lot more deeply. Uh, the, the film uh, just kind of goes, and oh, look, there's a, there's another star. It's great, you know, done, yay. Uh, it's gonna sound like I'm shitting on this movie, but by the way, I'll just I'll just say right up front, I actually do like this movie. Um, it's, it's a pretty decent movie, but it it's, it's it's kind of awful at the same time. I mean, you know, it's eighty. It is prototypical eighties. Big budget sci-fi is what it is. Yeah. I kept expecting the crew of the Starship Enterprise to fly by and cling on Warbird, you know. So like, get of our way, we got to go get the fucking whales and save the whales or whatever, right? I mean, it's, it's very much it feels like that. It, it very much looks like that. It looks like what's the best way to put it looks, this? It looks like a, the the um, the Leonov looks like a um, like a Russian submarine hunt for October. Does you know? it not? Yeah. This this looks like every imitator of two thousand one that came afterwards, this looks like sort of um, kind of a pale and, and most of the big budget sci-fi films of the eighties were kind of pale imitations of the stuff that was Im- imitating Kubrick in the seventies and such. So it, it does have that kind of feel to it. it. It does. It just aesthetically all across the board. It doesn't really look or feel like 2001 to me at all. Of course, part of that has to do with the fact that they have to, they had to recreate everything from the ground up because of course Kubrick destroyed everything. So they didn't right. have those sets to go back to. But here, it's I think the biggest thing is that the people here have personalities, and they're treated just like kind of regular people with yeah. goals, and they're talking to each other. And it just doesn't feel like it's the same world anymore. It doesn't feel like the same human race that we saw in 2001. And well, the, the novel, I mean, Clark definitely gets more interested in actually exploring very, like the different ways that people interact as he gets later on in his career. You know, this is something that, you know, the, 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 the genre as a whole, because in 1968, you could still kind of, you could still write a novel that really didn't have any recognizable human beings in it. That was kind of all about kind of big ideas. By 1984, you kind of had to, or 1982 when the novel was written, um, you you kind of had to have recognizable human beings who had who had kind of recognizable goals. And then, um, like by the 90s, you had to do things like you know, oh, like an, uh, then you know, he has characters who are like having like marital infidelities and all that kind of yeah. shit. You know, where where like you, suddenly you had to bring that that kind of gritty psychological complexity, or else people just didn't take the book seriously anymore. Which has its positives and negatives, but I, I think that that's just a marker of just how the genre had changed in the in the last you know in twenty years. Huge chunks of the novel just get dropped completely. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of making the film, I don't think it hurts the film necessarily, but kind of knowing the novel really well, uh, the the novel jumps or the 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 movie jumps from you know kind of Floyd leaving Earth to and suddenly we're in orbit around Jupiter. There's a whole like, Chinese mission oh, yeah. to uh, so so in the novel the Chinese send up, send up this uh, this flight called the Sien, uh, T S I E N, and um, it actually they they like design it so that it's like got this huge acceleration profile. It gets there way earlier than the Leonov does, and they land. And the Chinese actually discover these like creatures on the surface of Europa. And um, it's because of their influence that the monolith like stops allowing the humans uh, to even land. And there's this whole subplot, and in fact, you even get like a look at like what these creatures look like, kind of underneath the ice of the the moon of Europa. Um, Europa is, by the way, 
uh, even like like people who study kind of like astrobiology who who are actually like realistically looking at like where might life exist elsewhere yeah. in the solar system, Europa is the number one, two, and three place where we think yeah, yeah life probably. If there is life other than Earth in the solar system, it's probably on fucking Europa. So, um, and that that's that's a very very realistic thing, and and uh, lots of us are really excited to um, to hopefully one day get to put a probe on Europa to to, uh, to see what might or might not be down there. Um, just just as an aside. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, that's probably the biggest difference. I mean, there's essentially a whole like hundred page subplot that just gets completely dropped um, in the in the in the in the film. Uh, other than that, it's pretty much like the stuff that happens in the movie happens in the book. But um, like the arrow breaking thing, do you understand what's going on in the arrow breaking sequence in this in, in this film? Well, wasn't it they're accelerating too quickly towards Jupiter and they need to slow down, but they need to do it in a way without expending their fuel supply? That, yeah, you're exactly right. That that's yeah. what's going on. I just wasn't sure because, like, I know because again, I've read. And I'm not like trying to like insult your intelligence. I'm just mm-hmm. like, I don't know what people are getting from this film, you know, because I know what they're doing. Because I mean, they, you know, Clark basically did the math on all this stuff. Like when he's writing the novel, like he's actually like, well, this is how you do it, and this is, you know, he was he actually had like a background in like orbital mechanics, and you know was one of the people who originally proposed the geosynchronous satellite in real life. Yes, like he, yes. was a, he was an actual engineer. Did he so, also like, propose uh, sky elevators to planets as well? <laughs> he was one of the he was one of the people uh, proposing the the sky hooks, and uh, yeah. You know, so so. Uh, there are have been proposals like if these things actually get built, we'll call them like you know Clark elevators or something like we'll actually name them after him. Yeah, no. Uh, so so uh, yes, you're right. That 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 is what's happening in that sequence. And uh, the young woman, the the other the Russian astronaut who who comes in, uh, you know, kind of cuddles with Floyd during mm-hmm. that sequence. Um, that's something that happens in the book, and uh, you get a little bit more of a sense of like their loneliness i mean you, you get a little bit of it in the film as well but the idea that um we're just really isolated from the rest of humanity and it's not that we have like a i don't it's not like he like there's a romance that happens to no, most of the characters, it's just, but it's it's kind of a like we're clutching to each other because we have no other we're just yeah. terrified and we have no other thing to do during this moment um it's a very tender moment i think in the in the book and in the film um, but it, but it, well, it kind of yeah. comes out of nowhere <laughs> because it, you're like, who is this character? You know, <laughs> like yeah, it's just like on? it's just like one second is not happening, and the next second it is. But um, the actors sell it. I mean, Schreider is just—he's amazing. <laughs> when, when, when Roy Scheider died, this was actually the film I thought of because this yeah. is the film I've like. A, you know, not that I haven't seen Jaws or whatever, but um, this is kind of the the thing that like I most remember him from which is kind of silly that this is what i remember him from. yeah but he he does he he brings his star power to it i mean yeah. he, he was a big star at that point in in the yeah. box office and so he 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 brings it and the actress i i didn't copy her name down but she was actually a, a musician as well apparently she she just died a few years ago from cancer at like age 52 or something like that oh wow yeah, yeah. This this film, you can just see the 1980s in it. Like it, it is dated. That that's 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 the biggest problem. It it is very dated. Um, the I I I, st- I still I would argue with anyone that 2001 is not dated at all. Just maybe small details you can nitpick here and there, but for the most part, it's not. But this one, you see the computers you're using in this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
it looks very much like, yes, this was made in 1984. Yeah, I get yeah, that. The, the computer effects actually look worse in this than the ones that they made for 2001. Um, and I'm pretty sure the 2001 computer effects were basically done practically. Yeah, yeah. There's a, uh, one of the things, uh, one of the differences between 68 and 84 just in real life was 68 – there wasn't a thought of like a personal computer, like, mm-hmm. like how 9000 is supposed to be a mainframe that you interacted with through like a dumb terminal, essentially. By 1984, the computing technology had advanced to the point where um, you, you there wasn't this thought of like, oh, there's this big mainframe. So, so the Lyonov doesn't have one computer that everyone talks to. In the Lyonov, everybody has their own like little computer that they're interacting with. Which is much more realistic in yeah. its own way, um, in terms of like what we now know was was going to be possible with computers, uh, but it definitely violates that like you know world of two thousand one to some degree, yeah, where like nine years later and then everything is very very different. Strider's um, got look, that little uh, I think it's an Apple two C or something like that. It's that one you could fit in a briefcase. He's got it out in the beach there playing with it. Like, right. Yeah. And then of course the uh, the uh, the little red calculator he's carrying around later on. You know, mm-hmm. um, one of my favorite. Um, Something I will say positively, or it's just kind of you know, design-wise about the film. You look at these like '60s designs. You look at the um, the EVA pods. You look at uh, the spacesuits. All the stuff from the '60s, which it was kind of recreated for this '84 film. And you see it all like dirty and dusty. Mm-hmm. And you see it kind of yellowed with age. And uh, there is that just cultural sense of like 1984. This is how we felt about the 60s, was that, you know, it's this old kind of thing. It was fresh and new and futuristic and awesome back in the day, and that kind of all just failed. And I and I do think you get that sense. I was very caught up in this palpable sense of the lost 60s in this mm-hmm. There, there is a there is a lived-in feel to this universe presented in the in the '84 film. Um, like we were saying in 2001, everything's sterile and clean and Spartan. Like there's no clutter, there's no messes, there's no nothing like that anywhere in the film. In this film, you see people with like papers scattered everywhere and right. dirt on stuff. The Odyssey itself is covered in sulfur from uh, uh, orbiting. Like, was it Io? I believe it's Io. Yeah, yeah. Io is the most volcanic body in the solar system. Mm. Um, and that's something we didn't know until the uh, until the Voyager spacecraft came through. There, there were kind of hints of it, like we we had through telescopes. But then once the uh, one of the Voyager probes came through, and they they saw it and was like, "Holy fuck! Like this is hugely, and it's completely realistic because it's um it's basically the the closest moon to Jupiter, and there's this like huge tidal forces which keep the thing molten metal throughout. Sorry, I'm I'm now doing a, a lecture on um. <laughs> Astrogeology. All, all of a sudden, we're you know. fucking Neil deGrasse Tyson up in this bitch, you know? Like, Neil deGrasse Tyson has nothing. I don't know. Sorry, I'm not going to do this on Neil deGrasse Tyson on a podcast. He's going to show up, you know? I'm a chemist. He's an astrophysicist. We're, we're very yeah. different. I'll let him have. I'll let him have astronomy. I, I won't. Yeah, I you two will. Uh, you two will fight it out like uh, in that Star Trek episode with Spock and Kirk, where they had the fucking gladiator poles and shit. And that's, yeah. That's yeah. that's gonna happen. <laughs> now I, I I like this film. I don't I don't hate it, but it's definitely like you you watch two thousand one, and it's such an experience. Like it's this great piece of cinema, 
And, uh, and Shanna watched uh, both of these films kind of next to me. Like, I mean, she's kind of goofing off on Facebook or whatever. But, I mean, even she she kind of went to bed, like, most of the way through 2010. And then, like, the next day is like, so that's not a very good film, right? And I'm like, yeah, it's it's kind of not. Like, it's yeah. – I don't hate it. I mean, it's a perfectly decent little movie. But uh, it doesn't hold a candle to 2001. And it yeah. doesn't really stand alone either. I can't imagine, like, saying – to somebody, oh yeah, I watched 2010. Even if you haven't seen 2001, because well, even it's... the even the even the recap stuff at the beginning with 2001 looks like a way better movie than 2010. <laughs> right. It's just like, yeah. why am I not watching this movie instead? <laughs> why am I not watching the other film? Like, why am I not watching that instead? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, uh, Roy Scheider is great, and Helen Mirren. I forgot she's Helen really Mirren good. was in this. She's mm-hmm. really good in this with like eight lines of dialogue. She's yeah. really good in this, and. Um, Lithgow and, and Balaban. Oh, by yep. the way, fucking Bob Balaban as a character, Dr. Chandra. Chandra Sagram or something like that is supposed to be his full name. He's clearly supposed to be an Indian man. And, <laughs> it's, and it's fucking Bob Balaban. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a, it's a very obviously Indian name. I'm just going to say that. Well, um, they wanted to get um, Ben Kingsley. They wanted to get Ben Kingsley even, uh, originally because, you know, he played Gandhi, so... <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious because, like, it's not bad enough to have Ben Kingsley play Gandhi. Now, English white guy Ben Kingsley is going to play all Indian characters in films. And, and, I mean, this was way before Ben Kingsley was going to fucking slum it for anybody, too. I mean, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I mean, Bob Balaban is fine in the role. I actually, I actually really like his performance. I think all three of our kind of Americans do a good job in the role. Well, uh, the, but, the Lithgow... Um, relationship with the uh the max character max yeah no yeah that's one of the highlights uh not just of the the book uh, that's taken directly from the novel basically um and it's a uh, you know lithgow sells it really really well mm-hmm. i think lithgow gets um underrated as an actor a little bit just because he's, mm-hmm. he's kind of oh yeah he's funny you know third rock from the sun yeah whatever um, Harry and the Hendersons, you know. <laughs> what I love him. Say, you know, I love him from Buckaroo Banzai. Oh yeah, no, yeah. obviously, but um, he's really good in this. And I, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not. It's almost like I don't blame. I don't really blame anybody for this not being that great a movie. It's just it doesn't hold a candle to the Cooper. No, and, and it doesn't. And again, it just doesn't stand alone enough to kind of feel like I can kind of like recommend it, just because. I mean, I can't imagine trying to recommend this to somebody and saying, watch this on its own without knowing what happens in 2001 because yeah. it's not explained well enough to kind of know. Uh, I mean, the uh, the novel is even called 2010 Odyssey 2. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and then uh, yeah. the third one is 2061 Odyssey 3. You know? Wow. It's, it's that blatant <laughs> in terms of... <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to continue the story, you know. The the first one we talked about, like the special effects and admiring kind of the, you know, the the idea of like, you know, oh, there's this section of the ship that has gravity, and then there are sections that don't, and all that sort of thing. Um, they completely ignore that mm-hmm. in 2010. I mean, you know, they kind of like the outside of the ship. There is like a section that rotates, and that's kind of what's supposed to happen in the novel as well. But basically, it's like, oh yeah, we're in the ship, and there's gravity. And that's yeah. kind of, and, you know, and, you, and of course, uh, it's modern '80s audience, so you have to have sound going on outside in the space scenes, whether you know, 
that's plausible or not. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's not a terrible portrait of this kind of thing, you know. Um, at least it is a, a film that kind of, like, understands what, you know, orbital decay means and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Clark approved of it. You know, Clark was kind of like, yeah, no, this is, you know, and Clark kind of well, knew what he was talking uh, about. gave his blessing to, yeah, yeah go yeah. ahead and make the film. Just make your own film. Don't make my film again. Right. Basically. Which, which I, I, I respect that. I, I really mm-hmm. do kind of say, you know what? Yeah, go do your thing. You know, make some money. You know, like, like I, I don't, I don't have a problem with it being made. I think it's competent, mm-hmm. but it's only competent. And that, yeah. and that's kind of where I land on it. You know, it's, 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 it's very inessential. Ultimately, in trying to answer the questions that 2001 poses, it kind of short circuits to some degree the the experience of watching 2001. You know, it misses it misses the point of 2001 anyway. I mean, you're you're not supposed to you're not supposed to give concrete answers. You're supposed to leave it open to interpretation for the viewer. So, I mean, this movie is generally this movie um, as insulting as it's going to sound is basically for the dullards who didn't get 2001. This is what it is. Well, what did you think of the answers that we actually get? Um, like I, in particular about Hal's psychology. I, that's, the, that's the one thing that I find fairly convincing, like that answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I liked it. I, I liked that Hal wasn't just a straight-up psychopath. There, there was a reason for his conflicting uh, goals and, and what he did, why he did it. He's definitely portrayed as an innocent, actually basically a victim of his own programming and his own orders. I mean, he, at the end of the day, he's still a slave to basically the programming and the orders he was given. And really the, it's, it's the human's fault. Like they're and not even, um, I guess it's, I think it was maybe retcon that, if, I mean, when you look at it in the first, in the first film, the Haywood Floyd character in that film, kind of, kind of shady, you know, but here, Roy he's Schreiber, much more of a politician in the, in the mm-hmm. first film. And he's, he's a lot more of a scientist. In the but here, film. but here it's hinted that he knew nothing of this. And that basically there was some sort of shadow play going on government wise behind even his back that, right. that causes problems. So, I mean, that just sort of plays into the post Nixon government paranoia. We don't right. trust anybody thing. Right. So, Right. I mean, he's kind of a, you know, in, in the first one, it's kind of like, oh, he has an audience with the president and that sort of thing. And, and here it's like, yeah, he does, but he's also kind of, he, he's kind of much more portrayed as a smaller player, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, um, he's, I think that that's, I think that's realistic in terms of, you know, like kind of where, <laughs> as, as Clark, uh, you know, as Clark's kind of understanding of American politics advanced, uh, you know, and kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the role of kind of, science and uh, scientific advisors and that sort of thing within the yeah. uh, the world, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think 2001, because there wasn't necessarily much of a narrative to begin with, it was, so it wasn't a big part of the narrative, but you kind of see, like, the early stages of the kind of thing you saw later on in, like, Alien, where there's definitely this this idea of sort of, uh, sort of the more, like, truckers in space kind of idea, like... Uh, Bowman and Poole were just pilots. They they weren't supposed to know anything else or do anything else as far as that mission goes. And it was their, sort of the part of their inquisitive nature themselves that got them in trouble and made Hal do what he ended up doing. You you see you see here that also it kind of feels like you know these are kind of you know everyday almost 
although they are scientists and stuff, they're almost like presented like everyday blue collar workers to a certain degree, and right. they're kind of you know. And that's that's very much like Outland, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's kind of uh, it kind of comes out of that same you know kind of point of view, where uh, you know we're we're kind of working day stiffs. We're, we're kind of you know we just we just kind of come out here. We have a job to do. I, I mean, I like that aesthetic. I, I, yeah. I, I'm not I'm not saying I don't. It just it does feel very different from the the world of 2001. Yeah. But also, I mean, to defend it slightly in in that way that like. People in 1984 felt very differently about space travel than people did in yeah. 1968, and um, that that marker of the difference of 15 years, absolutely, uh, you know, that was a very critical time in terms of the American space program, in terms of you know the, this kind of uh, lost the, these lost dreams of like what we could do. I mean, by by 2010 or by by 84, I don't think anybody really thought like, oh yeah, by 2010 we're actually going to be able to do this. And you notice that like things like you don't have like massive space stations in yeah. 2010. You don't have this this kind of like you know futuristic you know design. You know these uh these this kind of a uh, 60s space age design to everything. I mean, it looks kind of low rent and cheap and and it looks more like the space shuttle you know yeah well and i mean the whole story is like becomes more centered around 1980s cold war paranoia and shit and and that's something that's actually um uh toned up in the film or from the the novel uh the novel i mean it's there the kind of the kind of buried political subtext but it's much more like (laughs) government officials say, you know, you should, you know, things are heating up on back on earth. And so we have to like separate. It's much more overt in the film that there is this like very specific uh, kind of uh, political difference and a very specific kind of like hot war starting. In fact, the, the, uh, the uh, novel doesn't include the, um, the use them in peace, use them together lines at the end. It's just, Mm -hmm. you know, all these worlds are yours, except Europa, except no landings there. You know, well, yeah, that's um, so, that. So. That's that eighties save the whale. The Cold War's bad. Okay, kind of message that <laughs> right. prevailed Which, through a lot. The Cold of War was fucking awful. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the threat of nuclear annihilation among the the two greatest powers the the human race has ever known. This is a bad thing. I'm yeah. going to just I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is a really bad thing. I, I admire um, you for putting that out there. Yeah, yeah. But ironically, uh, two thousand one, the novel kind of points much more clearly at, you know, kind of the human impulse towards creation and technology. Also the flip side of that being, you know, destruction through like nuclear Holocaust. That's much more a part of 2001 than 2010 in terms of the novels. But in the films, it's kind of switched in 2010. There's this very specific, you know, kind of uh, political incident that we're trying to avoid. Whereas uh, Kubrick's film doesn't, I mean, it, it kind of, it's there, but it's really buried. It's definitely yeah. not uh, quite as much on the surface. But it's just weird because 2001 feels so futuristic. And yeah. and then 2010 feels so fucking 80s. Like, they're talking warships and blockades and stuff. Like, <laughs> is that is that stuff really still going on nine years after 2001? And what what happened to the moon colonies? Like, shouldn't right. there be more moon colonies at this point? Like, this shit really shouldn't be happening if you if you take the events of two thousand one. It just it it doesn't feel like this shit would have happened at all 
in I feel like I'm now, now talking to you, I feel like now I want to reread 2010 and just see how much Clark changed between the, uh, yeah. between the two novels. And, you know, that's it just, it just feels so different. It just feels like such I a mean, total I, 80s movie. I think that the, the film is definitely, I mean, it, it feels very Peter Himes in the sense of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to make this kind of uh, almost, you know, beat you over the head political point about the Cold War. You know, in the same way that the original film, the 2001, is very much Kubrick kind of doing his big picture Kubrickian thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and and neither one is particularly that close to Clark. And and so so Clark kind of, uh, despite the fact of approving both versions and kind of, you know, liking what was done, neither one is really that close an adaptation of what Clark was, was kind of getting up to. Um, although yeah. I think 2001 is closer. Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't even say that. Well, That's I mean, a really interesting topic. Well, <laughs> Thinking I mean, about it again. Two thousand one isn't necessarily so close to the Sentinel as it is the the later novel because the novel was written the same time as the screenplay was doing, and there was a collaboration there between Kubrick yeah. and Clark. So the, the novel was released a couple of months after mm-hmm. the uh, the film, but they were written concurrently and they were finished concurrently. I mean, it was yeah. just kind of a book publishing versus. Uh, filmmaking kind of thing you know yeah, so, yeah um basically i mean there are very few differences between 2001 the book and 2001 the film uh probably the the other big difference besides like the planet that we end up going to mm-hmm. but the other big difference is that um the monoliths are clear in the novel as opposed to black aren't they tetrahedrons as well or whatever they were originally going to be tetrahedrons uh but uh they get switched to uh to you know the the Cube shape, the uh, not the cube, the, the rectangular shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time the uh, the novel was being written, and some of the early drafts, they were mm-hmm. um, tetrahedrons. I think there was this. Um, this was kind of in the midst of that chariot of the gods kind of thing, and I think yeah. there was a sense that like we're we're playing to this uh, like pyramid power crowd if we uh, make them tetrahedrons. Yeah. They were going to be clear in the film. They were going to be this like crystalline structure in the film, um, but it was apparently just too hard to keep clean, so they they changed them to black, um, which uh, really gives it this very unique visual uh, reference. I think if they'd been clear, it would have. Uh, I mean, it just probably wouldn't have read as well on camera. I think the fact that they're black makes them inscrutable. They which... and essentially what the monolith is is a doorway in a lot of ways. It's a transportation yeah. to to a new basically to a new higher form of being. So, I mean, when... It's it's a transportation, not just in... I mean, because they are like uh, wormholes, they're doorways, yeah. space doorways. But as, you, as you're saying, like they're doorways into like new mental states. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's like very clearly a drug reference in terms yeah. of like what, what <laughs> Kubrick was going for. And I mean, if there's one thing that, 2010 the 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 uh, the film loses it loses that sense of like really engaging with the the numinous the this kind of big picture this kind of really alien intelligence and it, and it really does ground everything in this like fundamental way yeah um because the novel kind of ends with you know <laughs> well this alien species just lit up a star and this is this uh well, what does this mean for human beings? And, you know, like, like the, well, it is this really big, like, question of, like, if they can do this, what else can they do? And They, you could, know, they could squash us like a fucking bug, and it's the fear of that 
like that comes right out of the eighties, that idea that at any moment we could be extinguished in an atomic fire. Right. 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 <laughs> it, it's just like, okay. Uh, at, fr- at first we were at the mercy of two superpowers being able to do that. And then all of a sudden it takes this other alien race that we can't even really conceive of because they're so highly advanced to put a threat out there that if you fuck around, we will fuck you up. And <laughs> that's what it takes to pacify the planet. <laughs> uh, at the end of the novel, um, uh, Hal is also uh, kind of resurrected by the monoliths and becomes uh, like he and uh, Bowman are like kind of hanging out and <laughs> like, like both kind of post organic being sort of thing. Oh, yeah. um, so uh, th- there is that element. I, I wish that uh, we'd gotten a, like a scene of like Hal and Bowman, like chatting at the end of uh, the, at the end of the film, you know? Um, yeah. Cause there is kind of a, there is kind of like a untied up thread there, which is kind of a sad goodbye to Hal when they, when they leave or whatever. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah um, go I have, couple. I kind of have nothing more to say about the film. Honestly. Yeah. I've, I've only got like maybe like two things to sure, uh, sure. mention. And um, I, I will say this, this film um, predicted Sequest DSV <laughs> because, <laughs> because of the dolphins. <laughs> the pool. Yeah. Thanks. And Roy Scheider. Fuck. <laughs> You're right. That's like that's actually the thing I think of when I think of Roy Scheider is Sequest DSV. <laughs> My God. Hey, Sequest DSV podcast, that's totally a go. That's never fucking happening. <laughs> that's never fucking happening. God Shane damn. will do that with me. My wife will do that with me. Yeah, done. Oh god, that second season was so bad. Uh, yeah. Actually I actually argue the first season was even kind of pretty bad, but <laughs> But it, it was a show I watched as as and it was it was the right age to watch that show. I'll put it yeah. that way. Um, <laughs> as were we all. Yeah, the nice little uh, sort of Easter egg stuck in there of Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick on the cover of Time Magazine as the opposing yep. presidents for the war <laughs> headline. There, that was kind of funny. I like that. Arthur C. Clarke has a cameo, not just yeah. in that, but um, he's like actually bench, uh, yeah. he's sitting on the park bench in front of the White House during that yep. scene, feeding yeah. feeding birds, feeding pigeons, yep. or whatever the fuck. Yep. Last little thing here um, before I get to the DVD Blu-ray uh, stuff. Uh, apparently, during the planning stages of 2010, email connection, and this is one of the earliest uh, examples of this, was provided between Peter Hyams and Arthur C. Clarke from Hollywood to Sh- Sri Lanka. So, um, and this yeah, was Clark, actually moved to Sri Lanka in the 70s and, and lived yeah. there for the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, back when it was called Ceylon, actually, <laughs> like that's how early he moved to Sri Lanka. So uh, they they did this so they could regularly uh, consult each other and. Um, how to adapt the novel to the big screen properly. And in 1983, 1984, such an email correspondence was practically unheard of outside of the academic community. So this was basically the first time it was done for the film industry, apparently. So yeah, no, a yeah. little bit historic note there. Yeah. Otis Clark was very uh, like interested in this kind of technology kind of early on and uh, very much a, uh, in the in the introduction to a lot of his books, he talks about. Um, you know, I think the introduction to uh, Odyssey three, he talks about the uh, the film production for um, for twenty ten or something. You know, yeah. Um, and then later on, he uh, he actually collaborated with this guy named Gentry Lee for a bunch of his uh, later novels in the nineties. You know, they collaborated basically by email. So. Uh, you know, very, very early uh, adopter of a lot of this technology. 
Yeah, apparently uh, there's a book called uh, The Odyssey File that was published in 1984 that has highlights of the emails between uh, Hyam, uh, Hyams and uh, uh, Clark. So uh, I, don't, I don't even know if that's in print anymore. Probably not. It's probably, it's probably lost. <laughs> um, well, now i got to Google it. Yeah. The budget for this was $28 million. Box office in the USA was forty point four million. I don't know what the worldwide is, but it, it still did fairly well. You can buy a mass market paperback from three ninety nine on Amazon. Oh, right on. Of the Odyssey file. Cool. DVD Blu-ray, two thousand, two thousand ten. There were DVD releases, and in two thousand nine, the Blu-ray release from Warner Home Video. This movie is essentially the redheaded stepchild of the uh, franchise, though. So there's not any like really cool. <laughs> There's no cool like extras or anything on any of these discs. Apparently, there's two films. This is the redheaded stepchild. Yes, yeah. <laughs> this this. Hey, let's wrap it back around. This is the ginger rapist of the uh, <laughs> 2001 series. Oh, I'm but a terrible fi- person. But this film doesn't even have a kick-ass band. <laughs> if yeah. only. But it yeah. does have Roy Scheider like uh, talking to an adorable little uh, five-year-old boy. So yeah. what, what else do you... It has a ghostly apparition um, combing an old woman's hair. Like, yeah. Come on. like what, yeah. what What else do you want from, from a film, really? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't even say don't watch this film. I, I, I think it's worth watching. It, I think it is. It's not a terrible film, but, I mean, you know, it's, it's not 2001. That's... <laughs> Well, I mean, what is really? I mean, yeah, and, and that's kind of, and that's kind of like, like you know, imagine it being nineteen eighty four, and you're like, you're a filmmaker, and you're given this. Okay, we're going to do a sequel to two thousand one. Of course, your answer is well, we'll answer the questions that were mm-hmm. posed in two thousand one. I mean, I totally get that it's a thing. I think that like once Clark wrote the novel, I mean. You know, ultimately, it was his novel to write. It was his, you know, it's his story to continue. I mean, he's the writer. Yeah. But once, once you have that, like, yeah, it kind of makes sense doing it. Uh, for me, it's just kind of like once it's done, and once you tell it, once you've told that story, and then you want to like visualize it, it's hard because I know the novel as well as I do to like watch the film and go, wow, there's like eighty percent of it just got cut completely. You know. Yeah. And so that's where I was like, how much of this did you even get on watching it without knowing the novel? I, I'm really happy that you got a lot, that you got so much out of it, that you kind of got what was going on, because I was just kind of on the, uh, like, if you haven't read the novel and don't, like, understand how, like, basic orbital mechanics works, you're probably not going to get anything out of this film. <laughs> but, um, I will say the, the special effects look really good. They do, um, yeah. That's probably, that's probably the, the other kind of big thing, but it's definitely less interesting. Like yeah. I, I would not revisit this as often as I would revisit two thousand. Oh, I, I, I never, I never want to watch this again. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm one and done, pretty much. <laughs> I've, I've watched it uh, probably three or four times. You know, like as, a, as a kid, you know, and, and then I rewatched it for this. I did not watch it twice. I did watch two thousand one twice for this podcast, but I didn't rewatch twenty ten. Um, and I, eh, would I ever watch it again? I wouldn't buy it. I wouldn't spend money on it. But I, I might, I might, uh, boring Sunday afternoon, I might, I might rewatch it one day, you know, sure. But really, you really need to catch a nap, you know, put that on. And... 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Like, I, I could see I could see like having a two thousand one party and like inviting my science geek friends over and we're gonna watch two thousand one and twenty ten. I could kind of see that being a thing. But we'd basically just make fun of twenty ten. Like we wouldn't pay attention to it and then we'd make fun of it. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. I do. I do kind of stand on the anything with Roy Scheider, John Lithgow, Bob Balaban, and Helen Mirren can't be all bad. You know? Oh no, like, it's a great. It's it is a great cast. I mean, it's amazing. It's a ama- like what a monumental fucking bad idea was to make a sequel in the first place. They did about as good as you could probably hope for, really, yeah. considering everything. And the cast they got was fucking amazing. So I mean, it, it's not a total loss. I'm going to start keeping a red calculator in my jacket pocket and just, like, show it to people and be like, I got this thing care of, red calculator, done. Yeah, and if you want this to happen, just type nine nines and then... Get and then, what is it, square root? Square and root then, and then the integer or whatever. Integer, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think we went, went on long enough about these two films. Yeah, uh, I, I have, I, I'm, I'm literally just like talking about how stupid. Like, I don't hate the film, but it's just like I just the more I talk about 2010, the more I just want to like rip it a new one for no reason. So, so Daniel, tell everyone about the multitude of podcasts you're doing now over at oispaceman.com. Oh, I don't do any podcasts at all over at oispaceman.com. I certainly don't have a two years in running uh, Doctor Who background where we're talking, my wife and I talk about uh, various classic and new series, Doctor Who. And I haven't started doing not just a Red Dwarf thread, but a uh, Firefly thread mm. on that same website. And um, certainly uh, every new episode of They Must Be Destroyed on site are not going to be posted on that same uh, website. No. So you certainly shouldn't go there for all new content that uh, Lee and I produce in this. And uh, hopefully, certainly we would not begin to start doing a homicide podcast at some time in the future never, never and post all those episodes over there. That that wouldn't be a thing that happens either. So whatever you do, don't go to oyspaceman.com and check out content because there is no new content being posted over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, definitely don't go over to your uh, Oyster Paceman Facebook group either, because you know people would not be interested in sci-fi podcasts at all, and no. yeah, it'd be terrible. So they should, probably should and, go over there. And anyone, do- anyone that sat through two hours of us talking about you know Arthur C. Clarke novels and, and films would not at all be interested in uh, going to the Oyster Paceman Facebook group, where uh, also we talk about they must be destroyed on site things. But uh, basically, it's all a bunch of, like, my... Right now, it's, like, ten people who are in that group, and they're mm-hmm. all, like, basically the smartest people I know talking about um, science fiction and fantasy and mostly Doctor Who. And, and I'm there as well, uh, occasionally. occasionally. <laughs> but I drag everything down. Like, all the other people, those are the smart people. So I'll, mm. I'll just leave it at that. I, I am a moderator there, but I'll just say... Um... I'm basically there just to approve people <laughs> if I see it pop up on my Facebook because for the most part, it's like, who are you? Who are you? I don't know you. Okay, whatever. I'm sure Daniel knows you, so there you go. You're on. Well, I'm hoping I'm hoping that uh, 
we stop talking just about Doctor Who all the time. I mean, it really is kind of a lot of my uh, Doctor Who friends who have kind of come on, and we're talking a lot of Doctor Who, but I'm hoping it expands to basically everything within the Always Spaceman family of podcasts, okay. and um, that's that's going to be a much broader conversation down the line, at least I hope so. So, um, yeah. Go check out alwaysspaceman.com. All of the future content is going to go up there for basically all of our podcasts. So yeah. enjoy. And, yeah. and hopefully some blog posts and stuff too. Um, I've got um, – I know there's a uh, – one of the people in the Oyster Spaceman group is a uh, vlogger as well. He's a YouTube vlogger about Doctor Who. And I told him – I made him an admin, and he can uh, he's going to start posting uh, some of his vlogs over there as well. So we are looking to, to kind of spread out and kind of put some new voices and some, some different kind of ideas out there and uh, – it's gonna it's gonna expand. I'm creating a uh, kind of an alternate universe Kevin Smith podcasting uh, <laughs> network. You know, I'm I'm trying to be the the much 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 smaller version of uh, the Smodcast. That's kind of where we're going with this. So. <laughs> right on. And uh, so the trail at the end will tell you where to find all these wonderful places to go to and. You can get in contact with us and all that good stuff and leave feedback. Next week, it's going to be uh, Stridulum. Stridulum, yep. Yeah. Uh, the nice little Italian sci-fi horror mystic weird goddamn film. <laughs> all I know is Jack Graham recommended it. It's Italian, and it's batshit. And I, ha- I know nothing else about it, and I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, and it'll, apparently it'll, I'm gonna have to write a plot summary for it. So yeah, good uh, luck with that one. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, good luck with that one. So I, I need to, to I need to watch it soon. That's kind of so I yeah. can process that. Okay, I got it. I got it. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's got Franco Nero as Jesus. <laughs> well, isn't that really all you need to say about a plot? Then you know, like you know, Franco Nero is a Jesus. Period. Yeah. The end. That's all. That's it, right? Yeah, it's really quite wonderful. Uh, so we're gonna kick out of here. This is gonna be a long, long fucking one, boys and girls, because I'm probably gonna some of the music stuff I'm gonna drop in this is long enough as it is. <laughs> I I I think, and Lee does not ask my opinion about these, but I think he should end on Daisy Daisy. That that's sort of where I. Uh, that's where I was planning on ending. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you know, just because we want to go on a fucking bummer. <laughs> with a, yeah. with a, compute, with a so, sad, so, tragic figure dying. So after uh, all of our uh, brainy, uh, way too headspacey podcasts, uh, we are going to do Stridulum, which is like crazy Italian weirdness, and then we get back into uh, we're going to do uh, sex uh, comedies after that, right? Uh, I thought we were going to do one more sci-fi. I think we were thinking of. Uh, Hopefully, getting Paul back by by that time and doing uh, Slither. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm down for that. Sure. Yeah. And then and I then mean, we're gonna... obviously. So sorry, I'm I'm doing I'm pretending like we're not like still on the air in this podcast, <laughs> but you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, hopefully we'll have Paul back. So uh, Stridulum, Slither, and then we're going to be jumping right back into the uh, sex comedies and. See where that takes us into the summer for, uh, you know, some spaghetti westerns and perhaps some slasher films near the end of it. You know, we'll, we'll space out things, see how we go. And uh, I think for sex comedies, we've uh, agreed to do the cheerleaders at some point. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is the yep. is the one that I insisted we do. And uh, I know Shana's wanting to come on for that, so uh, right that's going to be a fun time. Awesome. Okay, and until then, thank you everyone for listening. If you, if you stayed on this long with us, uh, very much appreciated. And uh, thank you, Daniel, for joining me again. Thanks, Lee, for continuing to invite me for no good reason. and uh, we'll see you guys all next episode goodbye bye my instructor was Mr. Langley and he taught me to sing a song if you'd like to hear it I can sing it for you I'd like to hear it Hal sing it for me It's called Daisy. 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 Give me your answer, too. I'm a crazy. All for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage I can't afford a marriage But you will keep a Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to us at iTunes and YouTube, as well as our Facebook group link, which is the best way to get in touch with us. 
We welcome all comments, questions, movie review suggestions, and criticisms, and we do our best to respond to everyone. You can also find us at Daniel's recently launched oispaceman.com, where you can find his sci-fi theme podcasts about Doctor Who and Red Dwarf. Thank you. Drive through.